I'm used to being recorded 24 hours a day. It's the new normal. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's how they gave us all coronavirus. <laughs> oh, finally, we're getting into this. Is it Mick or, or Mike or Mick? Mick? Okay. Yeah. Paige, I assume I'm getting that right. Yeah, yeah. It's like it's like the thing in a in a book. <laughs> yep. Thank you for making it relatable. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> What's in that movie, The Page Master? I saw that movie on my birthday. <laughs> <laughs> Not just this past year. <laughs> I was 12. It was fun. That's awesome. I like that it was your birthday and you wanted to do something centered around you, presumably, mm-hmm. so you saw the paper master. That is exactly what it was. And then, <laughs> then my parents got the movie theater to give me one of the posters. <laughs> oh, that is so cool. Yeah, so I had that hanging on my door for a while until I got a poster for Sleepy Hollow. <laughs> And that was a cooler poster, so. Was <laughs> the movie any good? It was fine. It was about books, and it was an animated Macaulay Culkin. I was just enjoying getting to see a movie on my birthday. I didn't know it was 12. <laughs> I guess it depends. If you if you punctuate it as page, comma, master, or page master, <laughs> one is dominant, the other is more submissive. Yeah. <laughs> I definitely went with the dominant one. <laughs> it's not like alternate lyrics of Pinky in the Brain. <laughs> so when Bajay gets in front of his camera, yeah, sorry. no, it's okay. He's vegan, like so it's a Snickers commercial moment where I could eat a Snickers get out of his spine, but they're not vegan, so fuck them. Is it the nougat? So they just put dairy and stuff like they just had. Uh, oh, oh the cho- of course, chocolate. <laughs> yeah, the chocolate, yeah. I think they both have it, actually. Okay, I think I should be good now. You don't mind me eating while we play. <laughs> All right. Thank you for waiting. All right. Welcome to episode 20, the season one finale of Recreational Thinking with Yoga Shrout. Today is our special episode because it's a bit of a USC reunion. Our guests are Paige Feldman, Mick Larson, and Rajay Kumar. And we all know each other from having gone to the University of Southern California, Fight On. We overlapped either as undergrads or grad students there. We'll also have Andrew Darby, who you may remember from episode seven. He will be doing color commentary, but his colors are not cardinal and gold because he did not go to USC, but USC is nothing if not welcoming to outsiders. (laughs) 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 Who knows? It's a podcast. (laughs) He didn't go to UCLA, so you don't have to boo him. Okay, thanks. <laughs> I went to UCLA. All right. So, well, yourself. <laughs> All right. Remember that order. It's arbitrary, but it'll be consistent throughout the game. So now, going in that order, you could each briefly state where you're Skyping from and approximately one sentence about yourself, starting with Paige. Hi. So I'm Paige. I am in West Hollywood right now, and I am a filmmaker and a writer, and I don't even remember what categories I told you to use, so this is going to be a fun surprise for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a, a bit of an odd quirk, considering we've only had 20 episodes and the majority of contestants have been male. Paige is actually the third female screenwriter to be a guest on this podcast. You got to know a lot to write. Yeah. A lot of weird stuff. <laughs> Hi, this is Future Yogesh. At the time of recording, I did not realize that two-time guest Muffy Morocco was also a screenwriter. So the number of female screenwriters we've had as guests is actually even higher. All right, uh, Mick? Hi, my name is Mick. I am a professor, uh, well, technically a lecturer of ancient history. I live in West LA. I work in Long Beach. 
And I also have no idea what categories I proposed to you initially. <laughs> yes, he moved to West Covina to follow Josh Chan, and then, uh, yeah. <laughs> it didn't work out. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, Rajay? Hi, I'm Raja Kumar. I live in Palms neighborhood near Culver City, also in the Los Angeles area. <laughs> I'm a research programmer for USC, actually. I kind of returned back to the nest there. I work currently in AI, but I also make video games that actually combine learning elements with the game so that neither of them suck, hopefully. <laughs> Try to just make people more excited to learn things, but in a video game format. So that's kind of my, my pa- where my passion projects are. Nice. Andrew? Yeah, my name's Andrew Darby. I'm in Hillsborough, Oregon, which is a suburb of Portland, Oregon. Currently a mortgage underwriter and grad student in finance at Portland State. And an interesting fact about me is I find all of your jobs really cool. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So this game is going to be in four rounds, one individual and three specialists. The first round I call the three R's round. It allows me to reduce, reuse, and recycle prior material. Because this is the quote-unquote season finale, I've made sure to select some of my favorite questions for this round. No, it is not the series finale. I do intend to continue making these, but I had to kind of draw a line somewhere, so I figured 20 episodes was a decent place. And so these questions will mostly serve as a warm-up, not in the sense of being easy. Some people have set their expectations wrongly when I said warm-up before and then gotten a bit thrown. Um, so it's, it's, it's more, you know, like throwing you in at the deep end, but they'll be worth a tenth of a point as tiebreakers. They won't matter that much for the overall score. Then again, the overall score also doesn't matter that much. It's more about showing off knowledge. But for this round only, you each will answer an individual. So if the first person the question is directed at misses, it'll go to the second, then the third if the first two miss. So the further back you are, the less of a direct shot you have. But the more time you have to think, and some potential answers could get taken off the table. We'll rotate to each of you is in first position three times, second position three times, third position three times. The rules will change after this round, and I will explain that when that occurs. And again, the content of the podcast is the way you think through the question in your thinking process. So remember to share that with the audience. Don't just keep it to yourself. You know, kind of talk through how you're thinking or any interesting connection that occurred to you. And now we will begin with Paige in first position for the first question. Everyone ready? I'm ready. All right. So, oh, and I will, some of the questions are long and a bit complexly worded, so I will copy and paste them into the chat window so you can read them as well as hear them. All right. The rules governing professional wrestling in the UK are known as the Admiral Lord Mount Evans rules and named after Edward Evans, first Baron Mount Evans, who over the course of his life became a full admiral in the Royal Navy, Lord Rector of the University of Aberdeen and Knight Commander of the Order of the Bath, and eventually a peer in the House of Lords. However, he was only able to do any of those things because of a fateful decision made on January 4th, 1912, when he was 30 years old. What man made that decision? Okay. This is not at all where I thought this was going to go. Um, <laughs> so something happened on January 4th, 1912. Um, and I mean, I, I, God, I, I'm terrible at early 20th century European history. Also African geography. So if that's a category, you're going to have some fun with that with me. Um <laughs> <laughs> I, I have no idea what this has to do with professional wrestling in the UK. That might just be a fun fact. When we're looking for when he was 30 years old, so he was born in 1882. I have a, maybe, so I read a lot of romance novels and I read some of them in the Regency era. And maybe there's something about the ability of a person to be recognized as a peer if they are a bastard. And so 
I'm going to go with a change in the rules in the House of Lords. And what man made that decision? Let's just say Winston Churchill, because he did everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this was a deliberately challenging question I, I didn't start off. So, um, yeah, you know, it's not surprising. I'm sure a lot of people, you know, would have difficulty making progress on it. But like I said, this is throwing you in at the deep end. All right. So you guessed Winston Churchill. Mick? All right. Some some important information here, perhaps. It was the University of Aberdeen, so maybe he's Scottish. I don't know what the relevance that might potentially have. It's a house in the Lords, and he becomes an aristocrat later in life, so he starts off as a commoner. Um, it might have something to do with, sort of, as Paige said, a change in the rules governing aspects of the British government. So I'm thinking, there's only a couple of names I can think of from the UK in that time period. So I will go with someone who was in the government, but I don't remember what position they had. I'll go with Lord Balfour. All right. Again, both good guesses, but not correct here. Roger? Oh, boy. Uh, I feel <laughs> I'm the least equipped to answer this one. So we'll have some fun here. Okay, so... A couple of things when you guys were talking came to mind. One is a lot of wars were happening around then, so maybe it was something to do with that. I know this was before World War One, but it could be something to do with like that Otto von Bismarck guy. But I'm not going to say that yet. I might because I'm also thinking that we have to talk about him getting into wrestling or rules. But it says everything that happened was because of something on January 4th, 1812, and he was 30. I don't know if any of this is relevant, but like it sort of implies that all these things happened after that date. I may be thinking of it wrong. So maybe he like wasn't conscripted. I'm not sure how things worked back then. Maybe he voluntarily joined, but maybe he became part of the Navy and then a Lord as a result. And then he made up the rules for governing wrestling because of that. And it all was kind of a chain reaction. And so maybe he had something that kept him out of the military prior to 1912 and something changed that day that let him in. And I'm wondering if there was a person that changed that. And I don't know many people from this era in history. So I'll go back to Otto von Bismarck. <laughs> <laughs> That's my answer. All right. Yeah, the, the wrestling thing is just kind of a weird sort of trivia fact I found when looking through it, because I know like the boxing rules, for instance, are called the Marcus of Queensbury rules. I guess it's kind of a for whatever reason, when they come up with these rules, they need to attach a peer's name to them. I guess, to give them more legitimacy. So that was really tangential to the other stuff he did. So, you know, in terms of why all that, why it wasn't this decision made it possible for all that later stuff to have, basically it was kind of a matter of life and death, literally. If a different decision had been made, he would not have lived to do any of the later things he did. But 1912 was within what is called the heroic age of Antarctic exploration. It's actually genuinely more heroic than most other quote-unquote heroic ages of exploration, since those generally involved, you know, pillaging and enslaving local people. But Antarctica didn't have any native inhabitants, so it's a little more legitimate to call that heroic. But specifically, Edward Evans was a member of the Terra Nova expedition. And on January 4th, 1912, the leader of that expedition, Robert Scott, made a decision. He picked four men to accompany him to the pole and sent three of them back. And famously, of course, all five of the men who went to the pole, not only did they not reach the South Pole first, they also all perished on the way back. Whereas Evans and the two other men managed to survive. Evans actually fell sick and had to be dragged on a sled. The real hero of that, a man named Tom Crean, basically dragged him all the way to safety. And he did so many heroic things on that. Then he came back a few years later as part of Shackleton's expedition and did a lot more heroic things there. But Evans, on the other hand, left behind exploration and went into the Navy 
Navy and did a bunch of other stuff. But the reason for that was a decision at the time he very much disagreed with to not make him part of the polar expedition of Robert Scott. I, the name the name Edward Evans sounded very vaguely familiar, and I didn't have a frame of reference to it. But I have scoured these Wikipedia pages because I find them interesting before, and that's probably like where that name has somewhere tangential in my brain. Yeah, so what's especially confusing is that a member of the expedition who did continue with Scott was named Edgar Evans. Oh. <laughs> so it's easy to confuse the two. All right, next question. We'll start with Mick in first position. Which country observes Martyrs Day on January 9th to commemorate a 1964 anti-U.S. riot touched off when jingoistic American high school students raised a U.S. flag without authorization? Hmm. Okay, well, it could be anywhere that there were U.S. people <laughs> in 1964, or maybe not, not even necessarily, but I imagine this has to be, well, it's obviously in a foreign country that isn't the United States. If it's called Martyrs Day... That means it might be Catholic, although that is quite an assumption. Where could there be anti-U.S. riots in 1964? The answer is any country but the United States. Wow, I'm, I'm just going to have to do sort of a, a shot in the dark here, where they raise a U.S. flag without authorization. Um, something in my brain is saying maybe somewhere in South America. Uh, there'd be lots of U.S. military presence in South America, especially during that time period. So I am going to guess... Columbia. All right. Very good guess, but not correct in this case. Raja? My first idea when I came to students and jingoism and stuff was like Grenada. I'm like, wait a minute, that was way, that came way later. And then I'm thinking like maybe Iran, but like Mossadegh didn't involve anything like that. Maybe it was the Shah of Iran, but I don't know. Um, I like where Mick was thinking with South America or Central America, perhaps. I'm trying to think, 1964. It's around the time, I believe, of Bay of Pigs. Hmm. But I don't see them doing anything like that here. Ah, what the hell? I'll say Cuba. Again, a very good guess, but not correct here. Paige? So my mind, because 1964, 60s and 70s, I immediately go to the Korean and Vietnam Wars. And so my thoughts kind of went to Southeast Asia. And I thought maybe maybe Guam at first, but that doesn't, for some reason, it's not, it's not sparking with me. So... Then I was thinking, like, where's a where's a place that has had a pretty conflict-heavy relationship to the U.S., but not super noticed? And I was thought the Philippines. And that seems right to me. I honestly have no other context besides what I'm giving, but I'm going to guess the Philippines. All right. Yeah, Philippines, very good guess, but I think they're sort of, well, the U.S. kind of granted them independence right after World War II, I think, so yeah, few, yeah a few decades off there. Yeah, Mick's guess was very close, actually, so kind of have to think about, so I said American high school students, that implies that these are sort of people who were American, so people who were actually living on American soil. So where did kind of the U.S. have actual territory where, you know, children were born and families grew up in 1964? And it's kind of hard to remember because we, we gave it up. Part of, I think, when Jimmy Carter became president, his policy was considerably less imperialistic than his predecessors. And he negotiated giving up a lot of U.S. territory. But people forget that the U.S. for a long time had a presence. And in fact, Senator John McCain was born in the Panama Canal Zone. And yeah, in 1964 were when these riots came to basically, what's the word I'm thinking of, resentment of the U.S. presence there and helped within, you know, a couple decades drive them out. But this was in Panama. Uh-huh. I gotta say, I really liked Paige's non-answer of Guam because if students in Guam had raised the U.S. flag without authorization and created a jingoistic riot and they celebrate Martyrs Day, the country that would have celebrated it would have been 
the United States since we own right. it. <laughs> I would have liked that too, but I didn't think that was right. It was a turbulent time in our history. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Raja in first position now. On October 27, 2009, 19-year-old country folk singer Taylor Mitchell, who had just been nominated for a Canadian Folk Music Award, went for a walk by herself inside Nova Scotia's Cape Breton Highlands National Park. Tragically, this resulted in her becoming the first known human adult to be killed by what kind of animals? Okay. Well, I know nothing about this person. I know a little bit about Canada, despite being in the country next door. I believe they're are the animals that are there that are that aren't really around in the other parts of the world i think are puffins so i'm going to say puffins that is a very interesting mental image to think of someone (laughs) (laughs) it's a crazy question yeah (laughs) oh that's now i want to see that horror movie like the night of the leapest with puffins Paige, come on (laughs) all right all right i'm I'm terrified of birds so we can make this happen (laughs) that may or may not come into play later in the game <laughs> yes, the special release bird statue through Skype round. All right, uh, page next. All right, so like Rajay, I don't know this person. I don't know much about Canada, but I do know that there are animals that have killed people. So we're going to go through a journey of animals that actually have killed people and then figure out what's left. Um, bears, wolves, probably foxes, snakes, unless we're talking about very specific kinds of snakes, bugs, spiders, but tarantulas... Uh, apparently, our daddy long legs are so venomous that they would kill humans in an instant, but their mouths aren't big enough. But in October in Nova Scotia, I think it's going to be too cold for a bunch of daddy long legs to come and attack someone in arachnophobia style. So the other thing that I'm thinking of is bunnies, because those exist up in the north. There are herbivores, but there is a book called Banicula about a vampire bunny, though that's fiction. <laughs> Um, that's not my answer. Bunnies is not my answer. Um, and it says in the first known adult, human adult, which means that I'm assuming a child's been killed by this kind of animal before. So I'm going to think that it's a, a tinier animal and maybe one that's a little bit mean, but we don't know it yet. And I, so I'm going to go with a type of rodent that has very big teeth and a strong tail. I'm going to say a beaver. <laughs> Well, I guess that is the national animal of Canada. So in yeah. terms of thinking of Canada, yeah. Uh, I was I was looking up. I think that that bit about Daddy Longlegs you mentioned is an urban legend. It's, okay. it's a very common one, but there's a whole section of the Wikipedia article called Misconceptions, which discusses it. But yeah, yeah. when you mentioned bunnies, I, of course, you know, I was going to sing the whole Anya song from the Buffy the Vampire Slayer. So. <laughs> <laughs> That direction, yeah. You didn't uh, go in the Banicula or its sequel, yeah. The Celery Socks at Midnight. <laughs> I did not. <laughs> I actually forgot. What was it you got? Oh, yeah. Beavers. Beaver. Um, yeah. That's, uh, again, a very interesting mental image there. And they do have very large teeth, but not correct in this case, Roger, or Mick, sorry. Yeah. I, I was going in the same direction that Paige was. This is a human adult, so it could be something that could potentially kill a child, but probably not an adult. And the sort of fauna of Canada that I would imagine are probably all things that have killed adults at some point, like seals. Seals have almost certainly killed somebody. Uh, Moose kills a lot of people, actually, I believe. So I was thinking between one of two choices. One might be eagles. Like, I can imagine eagles killing children, especially Don Henley. But I can't imagine... (laughs) (laughs) Um, Or I was also thinking about coyotes. 
Because coyotes are a relatively harmless kind of creature, although they're more of a desert creature, at least in my mindset. But I think I'm going to go with coyotes. Right. So eagles is interesting. Apparently, like a thousand years ago, in New Zealand had the Haas eagle, which was a gigantic bird that I think was it was either hunted to extinction by a Maori or they hunted its. It only ate one kind of animal, and that was hunted to extinction, and so it also died off. But it would have been interesting to think about that still being around. But yeah, no, I think of coyotes. I also associate them with the desert, maybe because of the slang term for like a guide across the Mexico-U.S. border. But I, I did some Googling to check, and apparently they live throughout North America. And um, although there is one case, I think, of a small child being killed by them, Taylor Mitchell was, in fact, the first known adult to be killed by coyotes. Oh! <laughs> wow. Good job, man. Wow. Nice. We're also cheering the death of somebody. <laughs> Point one points to me. <laughs> yeah, there has been one episode, I think episode four, where every question was missed by all three contestants. So anytime, if you get just even getting one right already, you avoid the bottom of the leaderboard there. <laughs> I just want to add on the on the Benicula theme. I was at a conference this week and someone's last name was Acula, A-K-U-L-A. No. And I immediately checked if they had a PhD. <laughs> <laughs> Did they have a PhD? I think they were about to get one, so... Uh, oh, thank God. <laughs> there's a lot of doctors with that last name around, so you can look up DR Acula with a K in Acula. All right, starting now with Paige on question four. This Saves Lives, formerly This Bar Saves Lives, is a charity-themed snack-based startup whose flagship line of snack bars you may have seen in upscale coffee shops and grocery markets. It was launched in 2013 by four Hollywood actors. Ryan Devlin, Todd Grinnell, Ravi Patel, and what woman who usually serves as the public face of the brand? I actually think I know this. If it's what I'm thinking of, I love this actress. I'm obsessed with one of her first TV shows that Yogesh, you actually turned me on to. So is it Kristen Bell? That's actually, it's nice to know that I had some, my, my uh, rabid Veronica Mars fandom had some legacy there. Because yeah. a lot of people were like, well, I'm never going to watch the show because you talk about it too much. <laughs> oh, they're stupid. <laughs> I mean, that's the only thing. <laughs> but yes, this is Kristen Bell is correct. Yes, she, uh, <laughs> she knew Ryan Devlin, in fact, because he had played a rapist on Veronica Mars. But apparently their real life relationship was much more cordial. One would hope. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> All right. Starting now with Mick on the next one. The Waterford Crystal Designs, known as Gift of Harmony, Gift of Serenity, Gift of Kindness, Gift of Wonder, Gift of Fortitude, and Gift of Inspiration, can all be seen where? Technically, you can observe them at any time, but for the most part, they are only viewed once a year. Huh. So if it's Waterford Crystal, and it has to be some sort of elaborate setup for them to have such fancy names. I imagine that these must refer to something like, well, at least my mind is going to chandeliers. Those are big and fancy and made of crystal. And they have to be able to be in a place which you observe only once a year normally. So it has to be a place associated with a specific holiday or day or time. And the question is, what might that be? Imagine it's got to be somewhere in the Anglophone world. What's the place that you only go once a year, or you only see pictures of once a year? That's, oof, um, that's, that's difficult. Maybe it's a clock or something like that. That would also require a lot of glass. So 
I'm just going to take a wild guess and say Times Square. Yeah, so this is one of my all-time favorite questions, and I, I like that it seems so opaque at first, but when you really kind of break it down, where is a large crystal object that everyone kind of looks at exactly once a year and then forgets about the rest of the time? It's the large crystal ball that drops in Times Square on New Year's Eve. Nice! <laughs> wow, John. So it's not a chandelier and it's not a clock, but it's clock <laughs> All right, next question, start with Rajay. It's a bit more difficult, but has an interesting story behind it. The name of which Navy cruiser fills in the blank in this excerpt from congressional testimony given at the urging of then-Congressman Joe Scarborough by 13-year-old amateur historian Hunter Scott? Here's the quote. As you can see, it has his thumbprint on the back. I carry this as a reminder of my mission in the memory of a man who ended his own life in 1968. I carry this dog tag to remind me that only in the United States can one person make a difference no matter what the age. I carry this dog tag to remind me of the privilege and responsibility that I have to carry forward the torch of honor passed to me by the men of the USS blank. Okay, so 68, I believe, was the Vietnam War. I could be wrong. Um, but I believe the Korean War was in the 50s, and this is well the United States. So now this is interesting here because it says a man who ended his own life um, and dog tag. So it sounds like someone who perhaps sacrificed themselves to save others, but I'm not sure. Um, as for ships, I know that there's USS Arizona, but that was in World War II in uh, Pearl Harbor. And... I'm also thinking maybe it was one of the ships involved in the Gulf of Tonkin incident, but I don't know those ships. I will just say Arizona. All right. Good guess. Paige? Um, I'm okay. Uh, so this quote, I have a lot of questions about. So first question is, are each of these sentences a different reference to something else? So a reference to something different. So his thumbprint... So there's one person, a memory of a man who ended his own life in 1968. Maybe that's another person. And this dog tag to remind me one person can make a difference no matter what the age is that a third person. And then privilege and responsibility. I have to carry forward the torch of honor passed to me by the men of the USS blank. Is that a fourth incident? Also, this kid is only 13. His last name is Scott. He's an amateur historian. Maybe he's also something else. Um... And I also don't know if this dog tag and the thing that has the thumbprint is something special or different. But if it has a thumbprint, if there's something with a thumbprint on the back, then it's probably uh, preserved in there or it's pressed in there. So I'm guessing there's a dog tag and something else. And there's a young person who died. Um, I also, I mean, I could probably venture a guess as to who these people might be, but that doesn't matter because the question is, what's the name of the ship? I don't know many ships. I'm from Missouri. I'm going to go with the USS Missouri. <laughs> yeah, I think that both of those are, I think they might be aircraft carriers rather than cruisers. Um, oh. I'm not, not my area They're of expertise. My, my, my knowledge of ships begins and ends with battleships. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So this is one kind of unbroken quote. My deduction would be that when he talks about one person making a difference, no matter what the age, he's talking about himself. The others are, uh, yeah, the others are, um, well, okay, that one sentence at least is about himself. And yeah, yeah, the USS Missouri is a battleship, definitely. Yeah. All right, Mick? Okay, 
I have a couple of kind of questions myself that I'm working through as if it's Joe Scarborough, who is currently a cable news talking head or, or host. And this must have happened in the last 10 to 15 years when this happened. And the question is why? Um, and I'm not entirely sure why that would be. Like Arizona was the first place that I went because it famously didn't come back. Now, why someone would end his own life in 1968, which is which makes me assume that something bad happened and then they committed suicide later on. And the question is, why? Like, how was that person traumatized? I, I'm like thinking of like, well, maybe it was like the, the, no, it couldn't have been like the ship of Jewish refugees that got turned away from New York Harbor because that yes. would have been a military ship. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm really kind of befuddled as to what the other possibilities might be. And I, I don't really have enough information to work on. So in terms of like the Gulf of Tonkin incident with, with Rajay talked about, I can't remember the ships that were involved in it. And so I'm just going to have to hazard a guess. And I'll say, um, I'll say the USS Lexington, which did sink. All right. Yeah. So the, um, yeah, I, I looked at it. Yeah, you were right. The, both the uh, Arizona and Missouri were battleships. I don't know why I had that misconception. But yeah, the Lexington, however, was an aircraft carrier, according to at least what I Googled just now. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, yeah, so so you were on the right track thinking of World War II, right? This was, yeah, it, you are right that this the suicide happened some years after the event. So going back to World War II was correct. And thinking about famous sinkings was also right. So in this case, uh, if, if any of you are familiar with the movie Jaws, right, there's an extended mm. monologue about the sinking of the USS Indianapolis. It was the ship that delivered the atomic bomb that was dropped on, uh, I think, Hiroshima. And then uh, on its way back, because it was a secret classified mission, so it was sunk by a Japanese submarine. And because it was a classified mission, no one was really allowed to know about it. So the men basically stayed in the water for several days and were, uh, many of them, eaten by sharks. But... Basically, to kind of have a scapegoat for it, the captain, Charles McVeigh, was court-martialed and had to, was essentially, his career was ended and resigned in disgrace and several years later did commit suicide. But several years after that, a young boy, I guess, kind of decided to take up his cause. He, you know, talked to his family. He conducted many interviews with surviving members of the ship, and he essentially compiled enough evidence to clear his name and show that the sinking was not actually Captain McVeigh's fault. And so... I guess it was shared with Joe Scarborough, who now is a cable news host, at the time was a congressman from Florida. And Joe Scarborough, I guess, arranged for him to testify in front of Congress. And he brought McVeigh's dog tags with him when he did so. And as a result of his testimony, President Clinton did sign eventually a motion exonerating Captain McVeigh. Wow. That's a nice story. Wow. All right. Next one starts with Paige, I believe. Archaeologist and National Academy of Sciences member Vance Hayes. Florida politician Alex Sink, who narrowly lost the 2010 gubernatorial election to Rick Scott, and 2013 Pulitzer Prize in Music recipient Carolyn Shaw, are among the approximately 1,500 living direct descendants of one of two men who are buried together in Mount Airy, North Carolina. In which modern-day country were those two men born? Huh. All right. Well, unfortunately, I don't really know much about any of these people. Um... (laughs) But there are 1,500 living direct descendants, and there are one of two men who are buried together in Mount Airy, North Carolina. So I'm assuming there are brothers, and perhaps twin brothers. Um, North Carolina is a, like, that, uh, the first thing I'm thinking of, is, as far as brothers in North Carolina are the Wright brothers. 
I mean, they were born in Ohio, but first in flight is the North Carolina license plate. And modern day country to me says that there were potentially born in a place that is no longer has that had that did not have the name that it currently does. And also, I don't think I think the Wright brothers would have had to be doing a lot less airspace engineering, airplane engineering, if they were going to have 1500 direct descendants living right now. And a lot more of something else that I don't know if I'm allowed to say on this podcast. Um, So I'm going to forget the Wright brothers for now. And men buried together in Mount Airy, North Carolina. Obviously, when I hear of 1500 direct descendants, my first thought goes to Genghis Khan because there's just so many people who are related to Genghis Khan. But that is not Genghis Khan is not buried in Mount Airy, North Carolina. Or is he? I mean, who who really knows? Who really knows where anything's where anything is right now? And I'm assuming that living direct descendants means that it was it's not that they're related to them because they're they're like great, 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 great grandparents. That's what it means. And it's not like, oh, like we're cousins or eighth cousins twice removed or something. So it's people who are actually like they're the ones that started the line. I don't know famous twins from super long ago. But, um, I mean, let's just say, hi, God, I don't know. I'm. Let's go with, it's either John Rolfe or John Smith, maybe. Oh, crap. You know, let's just say turkey and be done with it. I'll just go wild card. <laughs> Bring out a wild turkey there. Wild uh, turkey. <laughs> yeah. All right. Mick is next in order. Okay. So I had, I had a crazy idea. I had a crazy brainstorm while Wade was talking about this. So if someone has 1,500 direct descendants, obviously it was at least four generations ago, like a lot of exponents. So it has to be people from the 19th century at the very least. And I'm going to piggyback on her idea that these people were, these men were siblings. They were brothers who came to the United States from another place. And I am going to look at some of the wording of this and and extrapolate wildly from it. You say that these people were buried together in Mount Airy, North Carolina. So my guess is that these are 19th century immigrants to the United States named Chong and Ang Bunker, who are the original Siamese twins, and I am going to say Thailand. Oh, that's a good guess. Yeah, so Mount Airy, North Carolina, I think has two claims to fame. It was the basis for Mayberry in the Andy Griffith show and Mayberry RFD, and it is the burial place of Chang and Ang Bunker, the original wow. Siamese twins. Wow. Nick is killing it. <laughs> yeah, Nick, very impressive. A little cheeky wording in the... Uh... Yes, they're buried together because apparently no one wanted to separate them, even in death. And um, they did father, I think, collectively well over 20 children. Considering that they were joined together their entire life, maybe it's not best to think too hard about how they fathered those children. (laughs) 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 All right. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, but we have now, this is the last cycle of questions. So that was one starting with Paige. Now one more starting with Mick and then one more starting with Rajay. So Mick's will be this. Lieutenant Colonel Eugene K. Byrd lost his job as a prison commandant as a result of authoring the manuscript that became the 1974 book, The Loneliest Man in the World. Who is that book primarily about? Okay, so it had to be someone who was alone in prison, and presumably it has to be a military prison, um, and there aren't that many of them. And I I think I might have this, because I think this might be a reference to the, the Nazis who were imprisoned but not executed, that relatively small number, and this might be 
referring to Spandau prison in Germany, where I, everyone was released eventually, I believe, except for, I believe, Rudolf Hess. And so I will say Rudolf Hess. Yes, I mean, your reasoning again, this is another World War II question, and your reasoning about Spandau prison is correct, and so uh, you know this much is true, uh, speaking of Spandau. <laughs> <laughs> and yes, ah, the... Ah, oh, clever. <laughs> <laughs> I have a feeling it would take a few seconds for that penny to drop. But um, yeah, the uh, the last one to be kept, the others all had finite sentences and so were eventually released. But the one who was basically sentenced for life was a man who, for reasons that to this day are maybe the biggest mystery about World War II, for some reason, Rudolf has parachuted into Scotland in the middle of the war and was taken prisoner and not ever really released at any point during his lifetime. And to this day, no one knows why he did that. Yeah. Did they ask him? (laughs) (laughs) They had all those years, you know. Yeah, Yeah, that's a good question. Maybe I should check out that book to see if there are any clues. So that's what, three for Mick now? Yeah, and one for Paige. All right, and the last question of this round, we'll start with Rajay. I thought it was four for Mick. Um, Let's see, you got the Hess. I have three. 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 I've, I've read all of Rudolph, oh, sorry, Albert Speer's books, which are about Spandau prison, except for the last one, which is really, really bad. So you got Coyote, Times Square, Chang and Eng, and Spandau. Oh, so anyway. four. Oh, yeah. Four. Cool. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> really losing that. <laughs> you should get half a point for remembering that. <laughs> yeah, sadly, there are no points for correcting my scoring, although maybe there should be. All right. <laughs> Okay, and of course, you can't have a USC reunion episode without a question about Stanford. Go Cardinal. So, (laughs) (laughs) last question, we'll begin with Rajay. The 1556 founding text of mineralogy, De Re Metallica, could not be widely read in English until 1912, when a translation was issued by what Stanford-educated married couple? The wife, a Latinist who was also one of the few white American women of her era to be fluent in Mandarin, probably supplied the linguistic expertise. Hmm, okay. Stanford mineralogist is not my field of expertise by any stretch, but a really interesting question. Um, Funny thing, my dad is really into geology, so he would teach me about minerals. One time, a friend and I were watching Dolomite, the original, and my dad came by and he said, oh, Dolomite, and he gave us the chemical formula. We're like, what, the, what are you talking about? Turns out there's a mineral called Dolomite, which is spelled with one letter different, and my dad knew everything about it. It was, it was really funny. Anyway, it has nothing to do with my answer. De Re Metallica, just reading the question out loud here. Um, hmm. I'm trying to reread the question. Oh, what Stanford educated married couple got it? Okay. Okay, so... Which couple would have someone that knew a lot about Mandarin and that would perhaps have traveled to China? It's 1912, so perhaps they were responsible for naming something famous over there in, in that around Stanford. And I don't know Stanford campus well, so I don't know like if a certain square or building would be named after them. 1556. It's interesting because it's 1556, but the name is in Latin, so. I'm not sure if that's going to help. Um, Stanford-educated married couple. White American woman to be fluent in Mandarin. Huh. Let's see. And then we're also talking about perhaps a rich couple. And perhaps they were, you know, in California. So I'm going to take a stab and say Hearst, as in William Randolph Hearst. That's a, a very good guess. Although I think Hearst was famously attended Harvard and was kicked out. Or, yeah. Um, anyway, uh, so but yeah, very, very good guess. 
I see your logic there, and it next passes to Paige. All right. So my, uh, I had a lot of the same thoughts as Rajay about the California and the Hearst. Hearst was the thing that I had chambered, so thank you for taking that. Um, <laughs> I guess I think the the Mandarin thing, because the, the text is in Latin, the Mandarin thing seems to be an extraneous clue. Maybe if we knew about knew which white women of that era knew Mandarin, we would have a better sense of what the couple was, who the couple was. Um, but the real thing is that this is a woman who attended Stanford in 1912 when, I mean, I know USC was founded in like 1889 or something. Stanford was not either too far, like it was, it was all around the same time, the universities on the West Coast. And to have, to have a woman even in college at that point, you'd have to be a very privileged society type of people, probably again, living in California and with some pretty liberal parents. And I'm guessing that if you're fluent in Mandarin around that time, you've probably grown up in San Francisco or on the West Coast where there's a large Chinese immigrant population who helped build the railroads. But so that's that's what I'm going to take from the Mandarin, the, the Latin part. And also, you probably have to be interested in mineralogy in order to want to translate that into English. So if this was less of a uh, California-centered question, I would go to De Beers or some sort of diamond mining, mineral mining family. That's South Africa. And that kind of leaves me with the question of who is important in that time, who would have some sort of knowledge of minerals. Uh, and that's kind of where I'm, I'm running up against this because I'm not quite familiar with the history of uh, mineralogy or gemology. So rich married couples, let's go with some old money people from like or old new money people. And let's let's go with because she'd be alive. Let's go with the unsinkable Molly Brown and her husband. Oh, that's an interesting guess there. Yeah. I think in 1912, she was on the Titanic, in fact. So that, that's yeah, you, you did tie it into the, the year mentioned in the question. Yeah. All right, but yeah, while uh, while Rajay was talking, I noticed Mick had a kind of a, a flash uh, as though he had uh, something had occurred to him. Let's find out, Mick. Well, my thought was, and I, I've been kind of like in this sort of stew of the early 20th century, is we have to have like it doesn't mention that the wife is interested in mineralogy or, or metal metallurgy. She just knows Latin and Chinese. And I was thinking of someone who I believe, from the vague memories I have of a child learning about presidents, was interested in mineralogy, spent a lot of time overseas, including in East Asia, if I believe. And so my guess is Mr. and Mrs. Herbert Hoover. And I can't remember his wife's name for the life of me. Yeah, well, usually, yeah, like I said, last names are generally going to be acceptable for real life people. And yeah, so when Roger was talking, he said, is there something on the campus named after them? I haven't been to the campus recently, but at least when I was there, the tallest building on it was the tower hosting the Hoover Institute. Hoover, famously the only president so far to be a Stanford graduate. But he was, in fact, a mining engineer. He trained in, in engineering and he was posted to China. In fact, I think he and his wife were there during the Boxer Rebellion or right around that time. Yeah, and his wife had a huge interest in languages, so she did become fluent in Mandarin. Although he himself wasn't fluent, he apparently did understand enough that there are stories that he and his wife would converse to each other in Mandarin when they didn't want others to overhear their conversation. <laughs> 
Yeah. I, I just want to say, as someone who does know Latin, if anyone was confused, the text De Re Metallica means about Metallica. Enter <laughs> <laughs> <Right. Andrew> Sandman. <laughs> I was going to say, this may not have been the Metallica question you were hoping for, but you did, in fact, get it correct. This was Herbert and, <laughs> Herbert and Lou Henry Hoover. So I think that's, that's what, five for Mick and one for Paige and zero for Rajay, but that's still quite a bit of points to play for, so that won't mean all that much in the grand scheme of things, but a very impressive run there from Mick. And so we'll just continue now into the main part of the game, beginning with the what I call the not-all-that-hard round. These are supposed to be at least the easiest questions of the game. We'll see how that works out. But in this round, in all successive rounds, each of you will get three specialist questions related to your categories. Standard caveat, they're not intended to be a fair or comprehensive test of your knowledge. They may relate directly or obliquely. To keep everyone on their toes, I won't reveal the categories up front, maybe later when they become evident. So before you can answer, your opponents will get to work together to try and steal the points from you. You only get a chance to answer for points if your opponents miss. Sometimes, especially in later rounds, I might build suspense by not telling telling you whether they got it right, in which case, you know, just assume they got it wrong, because you won't get any point if you copy their answer. There are going to be some bonus questions sprinkled throughout, which are extra questions. If you get stolen from, worth half as many points as a steal. They're irregularly sprinkled in, so they won't accompany every single question. So far, they haven't shifted the outcome of any games, but they've given people who get stolen from a bit of a chance to recoup their egos, show off some more knowledge, and they've given listeners a few more questions to enjoy. Okay, now on for the rest of the game, the points will go to both stealers. They work together, but even if only one knows the answer, both of them will get full points. And we will start now with the questions where two points as a steal and one point as a specialist. Those will go up in later rounds. And we'll start with Mick and Rajay to steal from Paige. Are you right. ready? Yep. Lots of beard stroking from this team. <laughs> <laughs> the facial hair. <laughs> okay. Although I guess during this time period, lots and lots of men have been growing out facial hair. Because why not? <laughs> All right. Now, here's a question for Mick and Rajay first. Although she never quite got the big jobs and made the big money, whose highest profile part in a Hollywood feature film was opposite Johnny Lee Miller and Gerard Butler in Dracula 2000? Come whatever, she can still look back on the time she originated the role of Amber Van Tussel in John Waters' 1988 comedy Hairspray. Ooh. Okay. Have you seen Hairspray, Mick? <laughs> I, have I have. It was okay. 20 years ago. Okay. I have a very, very vague memory of the cast of Hairspray. Have you seen Dracula 2000? No. <laughs> but I am somewhat familiar with Johnny Lee Miller and Gerard Butler. That won't help here. Um, I feel like the wording of the clue isn't like intending to tell us something that I don't get. Hmm. Like the, the language of the big jobs, the big money, come whatever. So maybe it's someone who also has like a singing career. Oh, I see. Because she has to be famous for something. Right. Well, there were famous people in Hairspray, right? Yeah. Uh, John, no, no, Johnny Depp's in Crybaby. Yeah, that one I've seen, oddly enough. You've seen um, Crybaby, but not Hairspray? Well, I'm a Philistine, what can I say? Uh, <laughs> hmm. The only person I can remember from the cast of Hairspray is Ricky Lake, who played the main character, <clears throat> Mrs. Oh, Hairspray. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't remember if that's the name of her character or, or whatever. That's more than I know. I think we should go with that. Okay, so let's say Ricky Lake. Ricky Lake. All right, I'll keep quiet about that and let Paige have a go at it. Well, I absolutely know that Ricky Lake did not play Amber Von Tussle. I can't remember if Amber Von Tussle is the mom or the daughter. So in the newer film, it would have been Michelle Pfeiffer or Brittany Snow. But neither of those are the answer because besides Ricky Lake, the only person I know who is in John Waters' Hairspray is Divine. And she played Edna Turnblad. So that is the... And Ricky Lake played Tracy. So I am... 
with you guys in terms of thinking that the got the big jobs and made the big money and come whatever is some sort of clue. And it feels like a song or like a theme song for some sort of TV show or just a just a song in general. Um, And so because it wouldn't it would have been so she's not a she's not a fil- big film actress. I haven't seen Dracula 2000. And honestly, I've forgotten it existed until this moment right now. So she's either a TV actress or a singer, I would guess. Based on what I know about my categories, I'm assuming it's TV actress. And she would be if she's Amber. And then also in Dracula 2000, I'm assuming it's the, the daughter, the Britney Snow role, because we all know how much Hollywood loves their uh, older ladies, which is to say not really at all. So she probably played a mom in something on TV. And it would. Oh, God. And probably can sing, but we don't really realize it. And right now I am like drawing a blank on a lot of TV, but let's go with, oh God, I know that's, that would be wrong too. I was thinking Shelley Long, but she's way too old for that. Oh, I just need, I just need to choose somebody. And (laughs) I know I don't really know this. Let's say, let's, oh, love Pete. I keep thinking of people who are much too old, like Marlo Thomas, or much too young for this, and also who it wouldn't be true for, like uh, Kim Cattrall. Though Kim Cattrall would have been the right age back then. Let's say, oh, she needs to be blonde and cute. And, you know, what? let's just let's just say Marlo Thomas so we can be done with this torture and I can find out who it is. <laughs> All right, yeah, a lot of future stars in that original hairspray, not the not the musical that was made later on, but yeah, as you said, Ricky Lake as Tracy, Divine as her mother. I think her father was played by Jerry Stiller, if I remember correctly. Mm. And yeah, the Van Tussel family, the older... So I think a common, or kind of a red herring for this in terms of thinking of singers who were in that movie, but Debbie Harry of Blondie actually played Velma Von Tussel, mm. the mother. Uh, Amber, the, yeah, so, you know, you all figured out that wording was a clue and kind of a song lyric clue. And since we're all around the same age, give or take a few years, I thought maybe, because this is very much a song that is linked with a certain point in time, I thought maybe we might be more familiar with it. Andrew, do you recognize it? Come together? Would it help if I hummed Pachelbel's Canon in D? Oh, is it fucking vitamin C? Sorry, I cursed. <laughs> yeah, the lyrical references were to graduation, parentheses, friends forever. The one hit oh, of... Vitamin C? Noted one hit wonder, vitamin C, or Colleen Fitzpatrick. Oh, wow. I actually, that was my first thought, and I thought, that's stupid, don't say that. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> And then, of course, the role was well, in the film, the uh, later musical film was done by Britney Stone. The stage musical was actually on Broadway, was first played by Laura Bell Bundy a few years before mm. she was uh, Elle Woods in Legally Blonde. All right. Uh, next question for Paige and Rajay now to steal from Mick. So there's a, a bit of background here, but it'll it'll become evident eventually what the question is asking for. Considered one of the most beautiful women of her day, Baltimore society belle Hetty Carey was termed, alongside her sister Jenny and their cousin Constance, one of the so-called Carey Invincibles, who are still celebrated today by some for supporting the Confederacy during the Civil War and sewing the first Confederate battle flags. So speaking of racist relics that are inexplicably still celebrated today, Maryland, My Maryland was an anti-union poem by Confederate sympathizer James Ryder Randall. That Jenny Carey of the Carey Invincibles turned into a song that remains to this day the official state song of Maryland. 
She did this by setting it to a familiar tune, sometimes called Loriger Horatius, but better known by what English language title? I'm going to need to read this. Yeah, me too. Uh, <laughs> uh-huh. All right. Loriger Horatius. All right. Do you know any uh, Latin? <laughs> <laughs> no. It's not going to help you. As far oh, as I so know, they think it's okay. Latin. Latinx now? I don't even call Latin anymore. I think that's old. Um, yeah. Uh, um, let's see. I mean, could it Clear be like Dixie? Now. Could it be... Yeah, that. it could be that. My, my other guess was Auld Lang Syne, so forget that. Is Auld Lang Syne uh, the state song of Maryland? No, but it said it's, it's set to a familiar tune, right? So it's... Oh. Like, you know, they changed oh, the words, right. but kept the tune the same. She turned it to a song, it remains a state song. I feel like if it was to the tune of Dixie, they would have changed it a long time ago, which yeah. maybe they did. Um, Lorager, Horatius. Could it, could it be the Battle Hymn of the Republic? Just like oh. to be real ironic? Uh, yeah, I like that. Maybe maybe that's it. All right, let's let's let's, let's let's be ironic. Battle Hymn of the Republic. Battle Hymn of the Republic. <laughs> All right, uh, good guess. I, I like your, your logic there, but not correct. Mick? Uh, I'm not sure. I don't think the Horatius clue really matters. It just means praise or laurel-bearing Horatius. Who knows what that applies to? I have no idea. My thought was it has to be something that would fit, like, the meter of Maryland, my Maryland, that it could, like, match those syllables. And I was thinking of, like, patriotic American songs that might have been around at that time. Is that like how America the Beautiful goes from sea to shining sea could be done with Maryland to Maryland? So I will say, <clears throat> I will say America the Beautiful because I don't really have a great guess. Yeah, very good. But yeah, this is so apparently still, you know, taught to Maryland school children nowadays. So uh, kind of a very simple melody that's easy to sing along with. And you all kind of had partial thought, right? The idea that you could set Maryland my Maryland to it was was a good thought. Rajay's guess of Auld Lang Syne was surprisingly close because it is a song that, you know, most people associate with that time of year, though not specifically New Year's Eve. It probably would help if I gave you the German title it's also known by, O Tannenbaum. Oh. oh my gosh. A Christmas tree. Wow. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, the melody is the same as Oh Christmas Tree. We're all right. from the West. We wouldn't understand these songs. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's still amazing that that's still the state song today, because the lyrics are, you know, fairly undisguised anti-union pro-Confederacy. But okay, Mick and Paige now to steal from Rajay. Here's a question. Noted internet commentator Doug Walker, a.k.a. the Nostalgia Critic, is not a fan of the Matrix movies, not even the first one. Perhaps to deflate their perceived pretentiousness, in his recap slash reviews, he refers to the protagonist not as Neo, but by what common one-syllable name that actually kind of makes perfect sense? Hmm. Neo. New? I mean, just being super literal. Yeah, that, that, that is what Neo means. Yeah, or one, because he is the one and it's an anagram. That is true. That is true. Then there's also just the whole, like, all the Jesus references, and is it the Necronomicon that is super referenced? I don't know anything yeah, about I it. I saw the first Matrix movie a couple times. Okay. <laughs> That's all I got. All right. I, I, I was going to say, since it's Keanu Reeves, it could just be like, whoa. <laughs> Or dude. <laughs> Whoa. Um. It says one common one-syllable name. Which oh, yeah. Okay. Is like a name name instead of yeah. just a title, but I'm not sure. Okay. Oh, name that makes, yeah. Um, so, crap. What's the, what is his character's name 
that's not Neo because they or maybe Mr. Anderson. It's Mr. Anderson, but yeah, like they don't. Um, they don't emphasize his first name, do you? No, sure? they don't. So it's a common one, like. Well, if it's new, if it's new, then it would would be both like Keanu, but that new is not a common name. Right, and one is not a common name. Um, if we go with the Jesus angle, you could do something like Josh, which is just Jesus in a different. Yeah, course. it's yeah. <laughs> Yeshua. Yeah, there's also just like John. Also, just as anonymousness. Also, all the agents are called Smith. And that could be a real jackass way to refer to him. I think all of these are legitimate guesses. I know. This is <laughs> maybe just calls him Doug. <laughs> <laughs> Oddly meta. Yeah. Listen, I know I don't have to see it. I know. I was there. <laughs> I mean, there's the red pill and the blue pill, but like red is not a common one syllable name. Neither what is blue. Sisters now. Yeah, it's um. So Lily. it was Larry and Andy. Now it's Lana and Lily. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if that's. I don't know if that will help us. No. Um. I'll go with whatever you want here. I got nothing. I got. I got. I. I mean, I'm just. I'm throwing crap out. Let's. Uh. I. That makes perfect sense. It makes perfect. That's the thing that's that's getting me because it actually kind of makes perfect sense. Yeah, I, I would say like maybe we should go for the Jesus angle. So Josh might yeah. work. Chris might work. What was the second one you said? Chris. Like Chris. Ah, uh, I'll I'll go with either Josh or Chris. Let's go with Josh then. All right, let's do Josh. All right, yeah. When you were talking about the ones that weren't common names, I was like, well, you're in California, so if it's not a common name there, then it's definitely not a common name anywhere. But <laughs> I could believe that, like, you know, one had suddenly become a common name in California. <laughs> All right, <laughs> Roger. I, I like to hear you guys go back and forth. That was kind of entertaining. Um, I, I have seen Nostalgia Critic, though I don't remember watching these reviews, so I don't know what he said offhand. But I am thinking it's one of two. One, I do believe, you guys are right, he goes with Mr. Anderson in the movies, but I do believe this person was Thomas in the movie, so it could have been Tom. But I think Nostalgia Critic, you know, he is a funny guy. I think he's going to call him Ted after Ted Theodore Logan of Wild Stallions. So oh. I'm going to say Ted. All right. So, you know, um, yeah, sometimes when it's a, a coin flip, 50% of the time you land on the right one, 50% of the time you land on the wrong one. It was Tom for exactly the reasons ah. you said. Uh, <laughs> After it? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, good, good logic there, but yeah, it didn't end up in the right place. All right. I'm making Rajay now to steal from Paige. David Schwimmer claims that the reason Ross's hair in season one of Friends is unusually cropped is that he shot part of that season while playing what historical figure in a stage production of The Master and Margarita. Another classic TV hairstyle can be attributed to this role, as Telly Savalas first shaved his head while portraying this man in The Greatest Story Ever Told. So Telly Savalas and David Schwimmer play the same person? Um, Okay. Okay, so so yeah, it's it, the role that David Schwimmer had in both of these things. So The Master and Margarita is about St. Petersburg in 1920 when the devil comes to town and all sorts of crazy uh, things happen. Mm-hmm. The greatest story ever told is about Jesus. Yeah. I, I mean, that's not a personal opinion. That's the name of the movie. And uh, <laughs> so It's it not an allegory. It's, it literally is the, the story of Jesus. <laughs> I mean, what what false advertising to call it the greatest story ever told? Um, maybe they charge people more. But it sounds like the same person was in both of these productions, uh, or the same character, I believe. Yes, and huh. and I have read The Master and Margarita within the last couple of years. Yeah, so my guess would be Pontius Pilate, 
was a major character in the Master and Margarita, and presumably is in this Jesus movie. And Tully Savalas is playing Jesus. Huh? Uh, yeah, I mean, maybe he was part of Hair Club for Men back in Roman times. Um, <laughs> uh-huh. Let's do it. I like right, it. Let's say Pontius Pilate. Just Pilate. Yeah, so of course, Master and Margarita famously inspired the lyrics of the Rolling Stone Sympathy for the Devil, one of which is, you know, man, damn sure that Pilate washed his hands and sealed his fate. So yes, definitely the one figure who turns up in recorded history in the Bible and in the Master and Margarita, Pontius Pilate. Surprisingly. Yeah. Yeah, surprisingly influential on modern-day TV for someone who died. <laughs> uh, Sorry, I'll give a- <laughs> uh, I knew that one, too. That's all right. I'll get you. <laughs> I'll give a bonus to Paige. As I said, uh, I, I don't think I did say this, but the bonus says they're going to be related to the question, so they may not at all be related to the specialist category, and they may not be at the same level of difficulty as the question, but we'll see if Paige knows this. So speaking of Pontius Pilate, he's also been depicted on screen by, among others, Michael Palin in Life of Brian, Rod Steiger in Jesus of Nazareth, and what rock star in Martin Scorsese's The Last Temptation of Christ? Oh, God, I tried to watch The Last Temptation of Christ once, and then I fell asleep. Um... I know it was in the 70s and for some reason like god I don't for some reason I'm thinking either like Mick Jagger or Steven Tyler and because Aerosmith is a little bit more 80s I'm going Mick Jagger <laughs> yeah so there is a tie to Mastered Margarita with that guess but um but actually the movie was came out in the late 80s okay controversy but I mean thinking of 70s rock stars was the right path to go down but this was a man who's also acted in some other classic movies his name, David Bowie. Oh. Uh, okay. I'm thinking David Bowie. <laughs> yeah. He's pretty great in, in Last Temptation of Christ. A really kind of subdued performance. Yeah, I thought it was a good performance as well. All right, Paige and Rajay now to steal from Mick. Mm-hmm. So this is another question with a fairly long quote in it. So I've taken a quote from an article on societyofrock.com and I've replaced certain person's name with X and I've also redacted a few other parts of the quote. But basically it's your job to figure out which person's name I've replaced with X. And the title of the article is Late Metal Legends Early Doo-Wop Track Surface and the Way He Used to Sound Will Blow Your Mind. So here's the article. His dark wavy hair, piercing blue eyes, full lips, and voice like brushed silk, 19-year-old X would have fit in beautifully among the glossy portraits of teen idols adorning the walls of teenage girls throughout the 50s and 60s. Light years away from the long-haired vocal powerhouse that would forge a lasting legacy in the rock and metal world as the genre's most fiercely loved figure, the New York teenager was in the early stages of a career that would ultimately span over 50 years in length, breaking hearts and making his bones crooning doo-wop tunes with his group redacted and cut swoon-worthy tracks like An Angel is Missing and Blue Days, Blue Nights. At first listen, X is nearly unrecognizable. Someone played An Angel is Missing without telling me who the artist was, and to say that I was absolutely gobsmacked wouldn't be an exaggeration. His voice, while strong, is impossibly smooth and pretty restrained, the power that would later come to define his vocal style with, redacted, not yet making itself known. What is recognizable, however, is the incredible range X has always been known for, as he hits highs and lows that make the band's backup singers chase him back and forth, keeping up beautifully through the song's various call-and-answer sections. Okay. Wow. So it's a New Yorker. That's good to know. So we're not yeah. looking for, like, a, a British artist. Um, and I thought it was, like, Ronnie James Dio, but then I'm thinking it's, like, Joey Ramone. Um, I thought it, Joey Ramone, too. Yeah, right? Because they do a lot of call-and-response type stuff yeah. in their music. It's and very clearly, yeah, it's very clearly uh, inspired by 1950s music. 
Did he have blue eyes? I thought he had brown eyes, but they always wore sunglasses. So who knows? Yeah. Um, but Ron, why did you think Ronnie James Dio? Just because they're talking about the powerhouse mm-hmm. art, which I don't know if Joe Ramon was considered a powerhouse. They're more in yeah. So they weren't really known for their vocals. Yeah, that's that's what tripped me up too because the powerhouse section. Because yeah, they're very they're not known they're not known for powerful vocals. They're known for screaming things, but that is not necessarily powerhouse. Correct. Yeah, late metal legend. The other people I can think of are maybe like Alice Cooper. Oh, but Alice Cooper's still alive. That's right, and it said late. That's a good point. Yeah, I do I like all of Dio's. You know music so maybe there was some stuff that was more in line with this did he have blue eyes and dark hair i don't know what he looks like i know he had dark hair i don't know what color his eyes are other rock people um 50 years in length a career of 50 years in length and so he so if he was 19 years old and the career was over 50 years he died when he was like 70s early seven his early 70s okay Um, the part with the um, vocal range, I think, is interesting because I do recall vaguely, vaguely hearing about someone who could do like could like an insane vocal range. They could do really high highs and really low lows, and it was just considered legendary. And I just can't remember who that was. Um, some other. I like the guess of Alice Cooper. If Alice Cooper were dead, <laughs> um, is Ronnie James is Ronnie James Dio dead? Yeah. Because yeah. okay, that was a big deal when he died. Kind of why I, that's the other reason I thought of him. I mean, I'm okay. I, I can, we can keep thinking. I don't have a better guess than that, though. I say let's go with it. Um, All right. I'm not sure I'm gonna get anywhere else. So yeah, let's go, with Ronnie James Dio. All right. You're locking in Ronnie James Dio. Correct. Yep. Is that right, Mick? That would be the guess I would have. All right. Yeah. So I mean, so often on this, the past 19 episodes, so often has happened. People have blurted out the right answer in their very first sentence and then moved away from it. Sometimes they circle back. Sometimes they don't. But the very first thing you said, Rajay, was Ronnie James Dio, and that is the correct answer. Nice. All right. Good job. All right. Next one going to Mick and Paige to steal from Rajay. Originally developed by Interplay Productions for Commodore's Amiga computer in 1988 and released for 8-bit Nintendo in 1991, what imaginative variant on a common strategy game has the pieces come to life and violently eliminate one another instead of merely being removed from the board as they are captured? I mean, the first thing that comes to mind for me is chess. Yes. Yeah. I, 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 believe, I believe this is battle chess for the NES. All right, let's do it. <laughs> All right, you're locking in battle yeah. chess? Yeah, it's been copied in many other, for many platforms and redone in, in recent years. But yes, this is Battle Chess. Yep. <laughs> Immediately knew that one. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, now, Mick and Rajay to steal from Paige. Norman Bates wasn't the only Hitchcock villain who had an unusual relationship with his mother. Marion Lorne has a very brief but memorable cameo as Bruno's mom in Strangers on a Train, long before she won a posthumous 1968 Emmy for playing the dotty Aunt Clara on what sitcom? Oddly, she was the second actress to win a posthumous Emmy for this sitcom. She was also one of two Strangers on a Train actresses to have a recurring role on this sitcom. Laura Elliott, who played Bruno's murder victim, appeared on it as the second actress to portray Louise Tate. My first instinct is that, like, Yogesh must love this question. <laughs> um, yeah, I got to read this again. Uh, or I got to read this to figure it out. Not not again. Um, Aunt Clara. Okay. So it's a sitcom that was on in the late 60s. Right. It's the second actress. Oh, okay. To play Louise Tate. Okay. So what sitcom had Aunt Clara and Louise Tate on it? Uh, that's a great question. If only we well, knew. That is the question. 
Yoga is a great question. And it has to be one which has like an older female role as either a recurring or a, a featured character. Right. I'm thinking like, who is the older woman on Andy Griffith show? I don't know. I mean, maybe. Okay. I only okay. know of the Andy Griffith show. It's <laughs> uh, 1968. Uh, it also like Bay Barry RFD. Is that a sitcom? Was that related to the Andy Griffith show? It was. It was related. That's all I know. <laughs> Uh, could um, it, well, I yeah. think maybe RFT was with Barney Fife as the main role, not Andy Griffith and okay. Barney. There's also was the Beverly Hillbillies around this time. Yeah, what? but uh, I don't think I've seen the movie and some of the show, and oh, the movie's great. Uh, <laughs> well, it has to have this character named Louise Tate on it. So, and the the family in the Beverly Hillbillies was Clampett. So maybe that's not right. Right, and they had some like relatives, but I don't think there was an Aunt Clara. It's a sitcom. So what other sitcoms were there? Leave there? it to I don't Beaver. Know. Was that even... 1968 seems way too late for Leave it to Beaver. I'm not sure if that won an Emmy. I mean, was it that good? Um, <laughs> I don't know. I'm talking trash on 60s shows here. All in the Family was 70s, wasn't it? That's right. We got like My Three Sons. We got Leave it to Beaver. We got all those other shows from that era. Do you know anything about My Three Sons? Sorry? Do you know anything about My Three Sons? I don't. I don't. All I know is there was a Beefs and Butthead episode where they're watching a video by uh, Pizzicato 5 and then for some reason started trashing my three sons in the middle of it. It was amazing. The deep cut, Rache. <laughs> deep cut. <laughs> related and useless, but deep cut nonetheless. It's the story of my life. I keep going back to Andy Griffith's show. Want to go with right, that? Let's guess that then. All right, we're unlocking Andy Griffith's show, Yogesh. All right, yeah. I think I, I mentioned earlier that kind of tangentially tied into the Chang and Eng Bunker question, because uh, I think Andy Griffith was from Mount Airy, North Carolina, and you can kind of see Mayberry kind of sounds like Mount Airy, but that that show was on the air. I think it actually it actually went off the air in 68, but it was the number one show in the ratings that year, as I discussed in a previous episode, but it is not the correct answer. It's a good guess, but not the correct answer to this question. Right? All right. So I have I I don't know if I actually know this or if this is just related to the fact that Agnes Moorhead was in Citizen Kane. And it seems like there's a lot of movies that feed into this show. I like the idea of My Three Sons um, as the answer. Fred McMurray was in it as a not so Fred McMurray character. And he actually adopted the kid who played his youngest child, I believe, which is I need to look that up. I just think that's an interesting, um, interesting fact. The word dotty, though, is really what pushed me towards the answer I'm going to give, because this is a kind of silly sitcom known for a lot of dottiness and weird relatives popping in and out, quite literally, because it's about witches. And so I'm going to go with Bewitched. All right. So if we, uh, yeah, I think we're all a little too old for Wizards of Waverly Place, but the principal on it in kind of a nod to uh, earlier supernatural sitcoms is called Mr. Larry Tate because Larry Tate was the boss of Darren on Bewitched, and Louise Tate was his wife, played with a couple different actors. The second one was, she went by the name Casey Rogers, but back in the 50s, when she was in Strangers on a Train, she went by the name Laura Elliott, and actually, um, I guess the page is gone. I was going to ask if she remembered how, uh, but there's a memorable scene there where her character Miriam is strangled to death, and it's reflected in her character's thick eyeglasses, apparently Hitchcock, uh, so apparently the actress had perfect vision, but Hitchcock, famously a bit of a misogynistic asshole, insisted that she wear really thick glasses that essentially rendered her blind when, you know, she was playing the character. So in all of her scenes, whenever she moves, she's either being guided by other actors or has her hand on something that allows her to guide herself because she couldn't actually see where she was going. 
interesting trivia point there. But yeah, in terms of which very odd distinction, Alice Pierce, the first actress to play Gladys Kravitz, won an Emmy for it after she died. And then Marion Lorne won an Emmy about 10 days after she died for playing Aunt Clara. So Bewitched is correct. Hi, this is Future Yogesh, and I'd just like to register a perhaps nitpicky disagreement with something that Paige said. My Three Sons ran for well over a decade, so I think that Fred McMurray's performance on it can be said to be the paradigmatic Fred McMurray performance. If anything, his unsympathetic roles in Double Indemnity and The Apartment, those were the wildly anomalous ones. All right, Paige and Rajay to steal from Mick. Sandracotus is a genus of diving beetle found throughout South and East Asia and in parts of Australia. Sandracotus was also the name used by ancient Greek chroniclers. For what emperor, who, with the assistance of his counselor Chanakya, also known as Cautilia, ruled over much of South Asia in the 4th century BCE? Hmm, Sandracotus. A diving beetle. Yeah. Um, and we're trying to find an emperor. Yeah. What's all the name used by ancient Greeks for what emperor? Okay. I mean, were the were the was the beetle named contemporarily with this emperor? Because that could, if it if it was, that could say a lot about what people thought about him. <laughs> it may have to do with the literal meaning of Sandracotus. Mm. I'm guessing the cotus is like terracotta. Oh, okay. It's like clay, and I don't know what Sandra means. Sand clay. I'm guessing it's sand. I don't know. Um, that that works for me. I. <laughs> But um, it says South Asia, and I'm guessing, like, the Greeks, the only emperor I can think of was Porus, who defeated Alexander the Great, or at least was part of it. I don't know. That is one more emperor than I have thought of. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, that's all I got. Um, Let's do it. Porus. <laughs> locking, right, locking in Porus. All right, Mick? You're sort of on the right track with the name. It's actually sort of a Greek vocal transliteration of the names, and Sandra is sort of like what the actual Indian language is. Katas is Gupta, just in ah, Greek. Um, and so the emperor's name is Chandragupta Maurya, the founder of the Mauryan dynasty of North India around this time. Right, and the grandfather of Ashoka, who basically completed the task of conquering India, but then became a pacifist and converted to Buddhism. But yeah, Chandragupta Maurya is correct. Very good. And one, of, the, of, one of the few things we know about Sandra Katas is there was a treaty made between him and the Greek states, which now existed directly to his west, where they established a long-lasting peace based on the transfer of, what else, 500 elephants. Mm. Of course. <laughs> All right. And now the last question of this round, before the questions go up in difficulty, we'll go to Mick and Paige to steal from Rajay. What is almost certainly the most famous film to depict people celebrating Von Steuben Day? Part of it was shot during a Von Steuben Day parade on September 28, 1985, although the film itself appears to take place in late spring or early summer. Ferris Bueller's Day Off, right? I agree. (laughs) (laughs) So you're going to lock that in? Yeah. All right, yeah, Von Schoeben Day of a holiday celebrated basically in places where there are large German-American populations, I think Philadelphia, New York, but Chicago also has a famous parade, and that's where you can see Ferris Bueller sing Danke Shane and was it Twist and Shout? Twist and Shout, yeah. All right, and your bonus for Rajay. So speaking of Ferris Bueller's day off, Ben Stein appears in that film as an economics teacher who delivers a lecture improvised by Stein himself on what 1930 piece of legislation? Oh, shoot. I know he talks about voodoo economics, but that's not the name of the legislation. Shoot. 1930s legislation. Let's see here. Do you mind? Can you paste in the uh, question, please? Oh, sorry. Take a look at that. See if that jogs my memory. Okay. Um, 
Okay, that's all it says. Uh, <laughs> 1930s legislation and voodoo economics. Was voodoo economics from that movie too? Because I thought he was talking about more contemporary economics, but maybe he mentioned it in theory in passing. And oh, hmm, 1930 legislation would probably, the one I can think of is the Glass-Steagall Act to tamp down on bucket shops. And that was produced as a result of stock market crash in 1929. And yeah, let's go with that, Glass-Steagall Act. All right. Do any of the rest of you remember it? I remember. I think it's a kind of tariff, and I can't remember yeah. one. Is it the Holly Smoot tariff? Holly Smoot? Oh, was it that? Yeah, or Smoot Holly, I think he calls it. I think he calls it the Smoot Holly tariff, but ah. I've also heard Holly Smoot. But, I, think yeah. that. I thought it was earlier. Shoot. Yeah, I was surprised looking it up to realize that it was that late. I also had I had thought it was like 19th century, but... Yeah, I thought it was like uh, McKinley era. Mm-hmm. At the end of that round, we have a very close race. Page 7.1, Mick 7.5, Rajay 4.0. And so we continue on to the only somewhat harder round. The questions will be a bit harder. They'll now worth four points as a steal and three points as a specialist. Everyone ready to continue? Yep. Yes. All right. So we start with Mick and Rajay to steal from Page. Here's the question. There's a good argument to be made that what actress's biggest legacy is not any of her roles nor the Aurora Foundation she established to protect big cats, nor even her Oscar-nominated daughter or her movie star granddaughter, but rather the brief encounter she had with about 20 South Vietnamese women at a refugee camp near Sacramento in the mid-1970s. She flew in a manicurist to teach them how to do nails, and they taught those skills to other women who taught them to other women, and today an estimated 43% of all nail technicians in the U.S. are of Vietnamese extraction. Wow. There's this movie called Roar... I'm guessing it's Jane Fonda, actually. Well, right? Jane Fonda, like, my instinct that it is not Jane Fonda. Okay. Because, okay. like, Jane Fonda is associated with Vietnam War activism, but she's the one who went to Vietnam rather right. than brought people over. Also, like, does Jane Fonda ha- have an Oscar-nominated daughter or granddaughter? I don't know. I don't think so. Like, in the Roar Foundation, like, there was this movie called Roar, which was made around 1980, where it was a bunch of actors interacting with, like, lions and mountain lions and other big cats that mauled the hell out of them and, you know, hurt them horribly because they were right next to lions. Um, Mm -hmm. And I associate that with Melanie Griffith. Oh, yeah. She she might be the Oscar-nominated daughter instead of the mom. I'm not sure who Melanie Griffith's mom would be. Um, I don't know either. Shoot. <laughs> Presumably it was someone who was, you know, active in the generation before the 1970s and had, you know, clout and, and money and power and things like that. Yeah. I mean, the only other kind of feminine dynasty of female dynasty of actresses I can think of is like Goldie Hawn and Kate Hudson. Yeah. Or there was also can't... Janet Lee and Jamie Lee Curtis, but I don't think oh. it's them either. Yeah. But the granddaughter. Hmm. This movie star, so she, and the, the granddaughter might be young, but might have been like have a bit role in something, perhaps. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't know it if it's anywhere near recent. So she flew in a manicurist. Okay, teaching woman skills would be interesting. Biggest legacy, yeah. Um, I'm kind of drawing a blank on who this might be. The actress of the '60s, maybe the '50s. Yeah. Um, I don't think it's Jane Mansfield, um, or. Uh, Rita Hayworth, <laughs> Raquel Welch. No, I'm just naming the posters from the Shawshank Redemption. <laughs> <laughs> nice. But it might be someone like Rita Hayworth or, or Jane Mansfield in that generation. You know, I think your idea with the Roar Foundation, like I know a lot of these foundations are named after the movies and that helps them get publicity. I think we should go with your instinct on that. Which is what answer? 
I forgot what you said. Um, uh, well, okay. Well, let's go with... Find the recording and tell us. Sorry, you know what I said. Fine, fine. I didn't hear it anyway. Um, so let's... Yeah. Do you want to go with, like, Rita Hayworth? Well, you said Melanie Griffith, right? She was in Roar? Yeah, and she she must be the the Oscar-nominated daughter. I don't know about that. Okay, we can try her. (laughs) Maybe she's the grandma. Okay, we'll go with Melanie Griffith. You could also just try saying a last name. Griffith. Just, yeah, as a general hint. You locked in Griffith, and right, I'll pass it now to Paige. So you guys are totally right that Roar, that the Roar Foundation is named after the movie Roar, and Melanie Griffith Mick is the nom- Oscar-nominated daughter. The granddaughter is Dakota Johnson, who is uh, best known for Fifty Shades of Grey right now. And the mother was the star of Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds, Tippi Hedren. Tippi Hedren is my answer. Yeah, I could see Paige not not doing a great job of holding a poker face. I, I, just, I know, I know. I can't look at you guys. So I just looked at the ceiling and tried to breathe. <laughs> yeah, when you said it must be Melanie Griffith's mother, I was like, okay, they're going to get it now. And then, yeah, you, you just couldn't follow the remainder of that thread. I just, <laughs> um, didn't have the information to work. Yeah, I don't know who she is. Yeah, but I still cringe at remembering that Melanie Griffith has an Oscar nomination, but it's true. She does. Um, Have you not seen Working Girl? It's amazing. (laughs) Well, yeah, okay. I haven't seen that one, but her career in general is just, yeah, not, I'm not a, she doesn't have a ton of range. All right. Don't need (laughs) range when you got a script like Working Girl. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Paige and Rajay now to steal from Mick. In 1417, an Italian collector named Poggio Bracciolini spotted the only remaining manuscript of Lucretius's 1st century BC Epicurean text De Rerum Natura in a German monastery and rescued it from oblivion. What 2011 nonfiction bestseller, which won author Stephen Greenblatt both a National Book Award and a Pulitzer Prize, argues that this Klinemann altered the course of history and laid the foundation for modern thought? And hint, if I told you what Klinemann meant, that would basically give you the answer. <laughs> cool. Okay, um, can I read that? Um, the Rerum Natura. Klinemann. Oh, uh, nonfiction bestseller, Klinemann. I, I, what? So I don't even know what, what language to, even, to go with to even try to think about what roots Klinemann would, would come from. I'm thinking something like clinic and specimen, and I don't know mm. where those come from. Greek, maybe? Yeah. Um, hmm. Okay, so it's a first um, century BC Epicurean text. Epicurean, like, food-related? At least tangentially. Okay. Believe something about Epicurus and Epicurean food. Oh, Mick knows it, and he's just laughing at us. Of course he is. <laughs> I, th- I think he was laughing at your interpretation of Epicurean. But, uh... That's correct. <laughs> So here's something that has that, that definitely changed the course of history. There's two things. There's the uh, polio vaccine and there's pasteurization process of like okay. milk. I, oh, you're talking about food-wise. Yeah, well, yeah, food-wise. Or just like you said clinic and specimen. And so I immediately went to, to medicine and, and science things. So um, modern thought, you know, not modern medicine. Right. I'm thinking something more... Um, philosophical in nature okay i'm not saying you're wrong but no it's a good point let's see so okay so late modern thought wait. okay so 1417 right yeah poggio bracciolini now let's see was that the renaissance 
Or was that, that was that, that was in, that was during the Renaissance, yeah. That was during Renaissance, okay. Yeah, and he spotted the only manuscript okay, from so Rerum Natura um, from Rerum. something about nature. Yeah, natural. Um. So. Okay, so we need the 2011 nonfiction bestseller. Was about it and argued that it altered the course of history, but we don't necessarily, like, I don't, I'm not familiar with Stephen Greenblatt's work. I don't think that's necessary to answer the question. So we can maybe discard that part and just think about like, I like your idea of going to the Renaissance and rescuing that from oblivion. And it then after that changed history. It's not like it was sitting in a vault for 600, 700 years, 600 years before it was written. The the book in 2011 was about, medicine or something related to medicine or health mm-hmm. what was a big fad back then paleo diet Le- <laughs> <laughs> leeches um <laughs> those are definitely due for a com- what's up Yogic? i said those are definitely due for a comeback yeah <laughs> right. um, for modern thought so you said descartes when did he when, when was he going i think therefore i am I don't know. I don't think okay. I said Descartes. Yeah. Hmm. What is what is the fact? What what is modern thought? <laughs> this podcast will last seven hours. End it. I'll just talk about that for the rest of the time. Sounds good. Hour. What is modern thought, guys? We don't need this quiz. <laughs> All right. 2011 nonfiction. It's a nonfiction bestseller. So it was about something real. What did you read nine years ago? There's there's a book there's a book that was published I think around that time called The Omnivore's Dilemma. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. I don't know. Um, but we have to figure one. out what this is. It is it omnivorism? Is it um, farming? I don't know. <laughs> just ask for the title. Oh, the title. Okay. No, I don't think the Omnivore's Dilemma wrote The Omnivore's Dilemma. I think that's someone else. Okay. I can't think of anything better. Medicine. Were there any like medicine fads back then? Power of positive in the, in, thinking. In the 15th century. I meant 2011. Oh. <laughs> I mean, you said paleo. Paleo was happening then, I think, towards right, the beginning. It's or... kind of like an offshoot of the Atkins diet, right? Yeah, it's like low carb, slow was carb. Like, wasn't there a book like What Cavemen Ate or something? Yeah. I don't know. Let's say What Cavemen Ate. I like that. All right. What Cavemen Ate? We're going to lock that in, yeah? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're locking that in. Yeah, I, I don't think it's spoiling anything for Mick, because I think he and I both are aware that Epicureanism was a philosophical movement long before it was associated with eating fine food. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Yeah. All right, Mick. Um, you, you guys got closest when you were talking about etymology. And so clinum in the root in there, not in clinic, but in incline, which mm. uh, well, you could also as lean or in this very oh, God. context means the swerve, which is the name of the book. It's about atomism and sort of the switch to empirical, rational reasoning without the need for divinities. I have read the book by Mr. Greenblatt. I think it's a piece of shit. Um, <laughs> it's very popular. It was, it's very dumbed down and, and very kind of, oh, like sort of heightened narrative, like nonfiction. trying <laughs> to tell a story too much and embellishing it a ton. But it's called The Swerve. Yeah, the Pulitzer and National Book Award aren't given out by historians or classicists. So they maybe weren't, they could judge its literary qualities, maybe not its accuracy as scholars. But yes, that is correct. The swerve. All right. Yeah, nice. yeah.
Mick and Paige now to steal from Rajay. Voiced by Kimiko Glenn in Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, Penny Parker is an alternative universe version of Spider-Man who pilots a mech suit called, I guess that's Spider, capital S, capital P, slash, slash, lowercase dr, using her mind. The credited creator of this character is what American rock musician? who released his debut solo album, Hesitant Alien, in 2014. He's better known as a lead vocalist of a group he co-founded with his brother, Mikey. Hmm. Mm. I did not think that that's where that was going. Um, American rock musician was active at least 2010, probably 2000. Lead vocalist. What's that? Lead vocalist. Yeah. Mikey. The, The name, for some reason, I'm going to, oh God, the Beastie Boys. Or something I similar. They're, they're too, I think they're too early, and none of them are brothers. Oh, they're not brothers. I thought they were. I thought there were some brothers. Okay, so let's see. I know Clive Barker is a writer, also. Yeah. He does mostly horror, but he's also writer and musician. I don't know much about his band, or if he has a brother named Mikey. And the name Mikey feels very specific to me. Like, yeah. Well, could it be like like a group like the Killers or something like that? Right. And their lead singer's name is Brandon Flowers. Yeah. What are other bands of that? Um, well, you just there's Panic at the Disco lead singer is Brendan Yuri, and I don't know. Um, that would also be around that time. Yeah. It's credited character. So how old do you know when Penny Parker was created? I know nothing about comic books. Okay. But it's got to be very little. after 2000 if it's, you know, these people, presumably. Well, I mean, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse was a movie that just came out last year, and yeah. the animated one with Miles Morales. So Penny Parker could have been created. I'm guessing she wouldn't have been created until the 80s or 90s at the very earliest, just because of the politics and comic book making. Yeah. Um, and I've never heard that name. Right. Sounded like a hugely established part. Right. So, and I don't know who is in a band with their brother. Who would like I do Little girls in giant robots. Right. <laughs> so other another person who I thought of could be like Pete Wentz. Yeah. But I don't know whether he, I don't think he founded Follow Up Boy with a brother. Mikey Wentz. Mikey Wentz. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, it's and also debut solo album is like they're breaking away from the group somewhat. And so in 2014, they did. Yeah. Adam uh, Levine released an album, a solo album around that time, I think. Okay. Adam Levine from Maroon 5. Hmm. I don't know if he had, like, I just, this brother thing is is twisting me up, so. Is Adam Levine a rock musician? I mean, what are we talking, like, I don't even know what rock really means, but Maroon 5 uses actual instruments and Adam Levine plays guitar. Those are things. Those are useful so, things. So, like, like, it's not just headsets and dance moves. Yeah. <laughs> I think whatever we do is going to have to be a shot in the dark here. All right. I like, I kind of like your idea of Brandon Flowers, though, because this is a person who has to, like, write. And the killer's lyrics, which I know he writes, are very, they're... they're Moderately go- intellectual. Yeah. Yeah. And, this, and that's the other reason why I thought of Panic at the Disco. But I don't think that the lead singer of Panic at the Disco released a solo album. But I could see Brandon Flowers maybe doing or that. Or be capable of being creative. <laughs> well, no. Panic at the Disco's lyrics are pretty, um, like, th- there's a lot of words in there. And they know meter. They know meter really well. But I, li- I let's, I want to go with your idea of Brandon Flowers. Go ahead. Let's lock that in. All right. Very good thinking along the right lines, definitely, but not correct. Can you get any further, Rajay? Um, 
You know, I, I was thinking a different way. I don't know the answer offhand. The hesitant alien thing is what I keep fixing on. And for some reason, that reminds me of the band System of a Down and Serge Tankian, who's the lead singer of that. Though I don't know if he's ever branched down to work like this. Penny Parker is of kind of Japanese descent in the movie. And I'm wondering maybe it's a artist that has a lot of Japanese influence. I thought Peter Wentz was an interesting idea, but I don't know much about his background. I do kind of recall that System of a Down was formed with brothers, though I'm not sure why Serge would have a brother named Mikey, but who knows? That happens. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I can't think of anything else. I've been, I've been racking my brain here. I'm just going to go with Serge Tanky. I'm going to lock that in. All right, yeah, another good guess. Oddly, if you just kind of free associated with Mikey, you might have thought of like Saturday Night Live's Mikey Day, who is not actually related, but that would have gotten you surprisingly close. In terms of rock musicians who are really into comics and have done influential comic book work, in fact, this person even won the Eisner Award, which is the most prestigious comic book award for a series that was adapted for Netflix last year. You might have heard of it called The Umbrella Academy. Mm. <sighs> yeah, and that that was based on the work of the lead singer of My Chemical Romance, Gerard. Right. Yeah. Gerard Way. Oh, shoot. Didn't know his name. Sounds familiar. <laughs> All right. Mick and Rajay now to steal from Paige. What 12-letter adjective describes both an early 20th century school of painting associated with Giorgio de Chirico and a group of 17th century poets that included John Donne and Andrew Marvell? The term for the latter was coined by Samuel Johnson when describing Abraham Cowley in Lives of the Most Eminent English Poets. Um, I mean, my guess, like 12, 12 letters is a long string of letters, right? Oh, yeah. My guess is pre-Raphaelite. P-R-E-R-A-P-H-A-E-L-I-T-E. I count 13. All right, then scratch that. P-R-E-R-A, yeah. Okay, so it's got to be something else. What are you thinking, though? Uh, <laughs> it is a long early early 20th century. Pre-Raphaelite painting is <laughs> a little earlier. Right. All right. Early 20th century. What do we got from back then? Yeah, it's, it's not it's not one of the two-word things like abstract expressionism or Dada. It's not surrealism because John Donne is not surreal. Mm-hmm. Well, what do you know about John Donne and, or Andrew Marvell? Well, they're from the 17th century. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> They're lovely. <laughs> uh, Andrew Marvell is like, what, to his coy mistress? Or is it to the virgins to make much of it? It's one of those things, and John Donne wrote a ton of stuff. <clears throat> like, I would associate it with more of the romantic school, but even that's not the correct technical term. Hmm. High school of painting. Okay, well, what kind of painting did we have in the early 20th century? Uh, the, the, the Hudson River School. De Bruca. Uh, De Stiel. We should want English words, presumably. <laughs> uh, cubism is in there. Okay, how about Abraham Cowley? Do you know who that is? That's probably the least famous name in this paragraph. <laughs> and I don't know anything about Abraham Cowley. Okay. So this, okay. Is, this is what? This is during like the Catholic-Protestant sort of interchange in English history. Um, I don't know if religion plays into this title or not. Neoclassical is called letters. Neoclassical. Would that work? Well, neoclassical painting is associated with around 1800, the early 19th century. So I really don't think it's that. I don't have a better <laughs> option. Uh, it could be some other sort of neo or pre-setup. The industrial? <laughs> Maybe it could be something like, well, pastoral and bucolic are, are both not what John Donne does and are not the right length. Uh, okay. And why do you say them? 
<laughs> I'm, just, I'm, I'm pre-associating here. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. Trying to come up with words. Trying to mine them out of my brain. <laughs> that was meant to be confrontational, but it kind of sounded. <laughs> Giorgio de Chirico. I can only remember any of any precise works by him. I don't know that. I don't know any of this stuff. Well, we might just have to say neoclassical and punt on it because I don't have anything better than that. Yeah, let's do that. We're gonna lock in neoclassical. All right, that is one of my favorite adjectives, but as Mick pointed out, not the right time period. Paige. This is one of those that when I hear it, I am going to kick myself because I remember the first time I learned about this style in art history class, I was also studying these poets in an English class and was just the cognitive dissonance was was wild. I think romanticism is kind of the right feeling, I think. And I was I was counting. I just started thinking of as many 20th century schools of paintings as I could. And they're either 13 letters or like seven. So like expressionism, impressionism, fauvism, futurism, which is way too far away from that. And then DeShirico, I cannot remember what his paintings look like beyond a very vague or vague thought. And maybe it's the like the Bird in Flight series, which is just looks like a very large feather made out of metal. Um, And so it's... There's something there's something about this word, and uh, this is me trying to figure out what this word is, that kind of feels nostalgic and romantic and is also very descriptive, which is why it's an adjective. And I cannot think of it for the life of me. G-H-D. I'm just going to say, I'm going to say the word enlightened, because I think it's 12 letters, and that's about as close as I'm going to get right now, and I really just need to, I need to hear the answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, at least... It was in your area of knowledge, so that I at least feel better I picked that. But um, yeah, the word we're looking for here is metaphysical. Right. Oh. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, the Bird in Flight series, I think, is sculpture, not painting. It's it is, yeah. All right, next question. Again, another kind of long question, but you get a chance to see the text afterwards. Paige and Rajay to steal from Mick. A 1941 Gone with the Wind wannabe movie starring Gene Tierney as this woman shows her as an idealist committed to advancing the Southern cause during the Civil War and advised by her faithful servant, a middle-aged black woman named Mammy Lou. That film has, to put it mildly, not aged well. (laughs) (laughs) Can imagine. Yes. (laughs) This woman is also the protagonist of a 1968 Italian film directed by Lena Wertmuller that Wikipedia describes as, quote, the only spaghetti western directed by a woman and one of the few which stars a woman in the title role, end quote. Additionally portrayed on screen by, among others, Jane Russell, Marie Windsor, Florence Henderson, Pamela Reed, and Elizabeth Montgomery, speaking of Bewitched, this is what real-life figure who, on top of all that, inspired outlaw ballads penned by Woody Guthrie, Emmy Lou Harris, and Sissy Spacek. Separately, they didn't all collaborate on something. I mean, when I hear Sissy Spacek, my first thought is Coal Miner's Daughter. Hmm. But I don't know who that's about, and I also don't know if that's, that's, a, that's a movie about a country star. So it's interesting because they talk about she's a advanced she wants to advance the co- the southern cause during the Civil War, but then it also says she's also protagonist of a spaghetti western, and like, she's played by a bunch of people. So I'm thinking like someone like Calamity Jane, and maybe she was cool. like doing that stuff later in her life. Yeah, Calamity Jane or Annie Oakley, those are the two that I thought of too. Maybe Annie Oakley then. Um, why, why would you why would you uh, go go there and dismiss Calamity Jane? Uh. It sounds like she was, I feel like she was a bit more the subject of film than Calamity Jane. Mm-hmm. That's, yeah. 
I don't know much about Calamity Jane. It's also interesting that I don't... Annie Oakley's, you know, been Annie Get Your Gun, and um, I don't think any of these... I don't know... Yeah. Mm. And then Outlaw Ballads. Is Calamity Jane an outlaw? And was Annie Oakley an outlaw? Because was she, like, in the circus or something? Oh, mm. yeah. Hmm, that's a good point. Because maybe Calamity Jane was an outlaw and Annie Oakley was more of, like, a performer? Yeah. All right. Yeah, maybe we should go with Calamity Jane then. All right, let's do it. Let's go Calamity Jane. Calamity Jane, we're locking right. it in. Yeah. All right. I'm not sure if she was an outlaw, though. She was the inspiration for the name of Calamity Jan, a minor villain on the Batman TV series of the 60s. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, uh, it was played by Dina Merrill, who is the daughter of Marjorie Merriweather Post. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah andrew remembers my need to work marjorie merriweather post into everything all right <laughs> mick I, I had boiled it down to annie oakley or calamity jane and i would have guessed calamity jane all right well since they took that do you want to guess something else um so it's got to be someone from the american west with a with a woman in charge subject of outlaw ballads I think the Civil War thing is just to just to send things off, but I might say, oh, who was that lady? Um, maybe like someone like Florence Nightingale. That's not the. There's another one who's associated with the American Civil War who might be Florence Nightingale, but might also be someone else's name I can't remember. So if it's not that, I'll say Florence Nightingale. All right, you were probably thinking of Clara Barton, I would imagine. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, not 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 much of a, a gunfighter, right? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, this is um we so in actually in Rajay's previous episode you might remember there was a question about Bass Reeves, right? One of the Oh yeah. The, yeah, one of the things he did during his career was he did arrest this woman, maybe one of the few Wild West outlaws who was a woman. Her name was Belle Starr. Oh. Never heard of her. All right, Mick and Page now to steal from Rajay. Fictional detective Holly Gibney is played by Tony Winner slash Oscar nominee Cynthia Erivo who is black, in The Outsider, a 2020 HBO miniseries based on the Stephen King book of the same name. Meanwhile, the very Caucasian Justine Loop can be seen as Holly Gibney in what mystery thriller series that aired three seasons on the Audience Network before that network shuttered in late 2019? This series is also based on the work of Stephen King, in this case, a trilogy of novels that includes Finders Keepers and End of Watch. Let me read this question. Yeah. yeah. In what mystery thriller series? Well, well, Holly Gibney makes me think of Susan Gibney, who plays Leah Brahms on an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation I just watched called Galaxy's Child, which has nothing to do with all of this. Okay. <laughs> all right. I haven't seen The Outsider. I also haven't seen this other series. So, and I can't be much help there, but there's a trilogy of Stephen King's novels. Yeah, and they, don't give, us, nothing... and they don't give us the third name of the novel. Right. Finders Keepers and End of Watch. I'm assuming that this isn't like the Dark Tower or anything like that, because no, we would have heard of that. Yeah. I've read um, that. Okay. <laughs> but it might be based off a Stephen King novel we do know. Right. Um, um, so. Like, what was the sequel to The Shining that came out? Doctor Sleep. Um, that's yeah, Doctor Sleep. And yeah, this seems like one of the, like Stephen King always has a little bit of a, um, hold on one sec. I'm in the middle of it. <laughs> Sorry, I'm, be, I'm being asked to eat lunch, to order lunch. <laughs> so, Could it be like what the other Stephen... What's that? Could it be like The Dead Zone? Did that have sequels? That, that's a Stephen King thing. And there was some sort of TV show based on The Dead Zone, wasn't there? 
I think it might have been called The Dead Zone. Yeah, it wasn't just that so. movie with Christopher Walken and Martin Sheen. Um, I, 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 the Dead Zone's as good of a guess as any, and I think that it's from what I know about The Outsider, it kind of it's it's more of an uncanny valley one and less of a like a Shining esque or It esque type of thing where it's weird stuff is happening and it's most it, it's mostly in the the realm of of normal but then there's aliens <laughs> yeah well the dead zone is about sort of like premonitions okay things like that um, let's yeah okay we could do that let's let's go to the dead zone yeah the dead zone made into a very uh, entertaining 80s movie with christopher walken as you briefly mentioned and there was a series i think it was early 2000s with anthony michael hall Mm. kind of getting his career back after the Brat Pack stuff. But yeah, so that's not quite the right era there, but a good thought. Roger? Okay, I'm um, not sure why this is one of my questions, because I know very little about this stuff. Let's see here. I was actually thinking of The Dark Tower, and so thank you, Mick, for saying that's not the right answer, because I really would have just said that. Um, <laughs> let's see, Holly Gibney, and it's interesting that you say that she is black. Um, that must be a clue. And Justine Loop. It, it's more the, just, I find it amusing that there are dueling interpretations of the character, one black and one very white. Oh, I see there. Okay, I get it now. Okay, the series is also based on the work of Stephen King. A trilogy of novels that includes Finders, Keepers, and End of Watch. So I'm guessing that in that trilogy, it's the, the third one there is the giveaway. And I'm not sure if I know all Stephen King's novels. I'm not sure he does at this point. <laughs> um, so what could there be that had things like Finders Keepers and End of Watch. Um, there's the Pet Cemetery series. I think that was a series. I don't know. What else was there? I cannot think of Stephen King novels here. I know he did The Body, which became Stand By Me. He also did The Langoliers, which had Bronson Pinchot. Again, not really relevant. <laughs> but Mix inspired me by just spouting off random nonsense when you can't think of what else to say. Sometimes it Sorry, works, I'm sure. And if anyone is wondering why I'm picking on Mick, if I am, I'm not really. We were on the same bar trivia team, so we, we've always been rousting each other there. Or maybe I was just doing the rousting and I'm the asshole. I don't know. Um, sorry. <laughs> and then I make, uh, but we had a good time. I think we did bar trivia until we won, and then we stopped doing it. It's kind of what happened. But now no one's doing it, so there you go. In any case, in any case, the, um, the Outsider sounds like a detective novel. Did he say detective? Hmm. A mystery thriller. Okay, there we go. Um, based on this book. Oh, it was based on the book. Wait, hold on a second. Let me read this again. Um, I'll link it. Oh, it's this detective. There we go. Um, miniseries based on a Stephen King book of the same name. Okay. And Justin Loop was seen in Holly and Mystery Thriller series. Okay. And the series is also based on the work of Stephen King. I see. Okay. So they're different, different books. So the other thing I can think of is a stand. That just came to me. And then... That seems too much like The Leftovers. So why would they have The Leftovers and The Stand? I think Leftovers is also on HBO. But maybe it's the same thing, and I'm just confused. Wait, no, Lefto- no, Leftovers would be the name of the series, not the name of the book. Play by blah, 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 who is in The Outsider. Okay, so the series is called The Outsider, based on a book of the same name. Okay, I got it. Okay, um, meanwhile, seen as Holly. Okay, I see. So Holly appears in this book and also this trilogy. Jeez, okay. So Stephen King novel with detectives. Jeez, I've just talked myself into nothing. I'm no better off than when I started here. Yeah, I uh, might have to ask you to move toward an answer. Yeah, jeez. Uh, okay, you know what, Mick, maybe you're wrong. I'm going to say um, The Tower, The Dark Tower. 
Okay, yeah, that was apparently wasn't made into a heavily panned movie. But yeah, so many so many things by Stephen King have been adapted. It's hard to keep track now. But yeah, this this novel it was the first part of a movie that was then continued in Finders Keepers and End of Watch. And the show actually starred Brendan Gleeson as the main <laughs> character with Justine Lupin's supporting role. But Stephen King really liked the character and has brought her back in many other works he's written since then. It's written a surprising amount considering how recently that was. But the show is called the show and the novel are called Mr. Mercedes. Ah. Uh. Of it. I have seen ads for that. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's yeah, let's move on because we're running a little long now. Mick and Rajay now to steal from Paige. Longtime listeners of this podcast will recall that William O. Douglas of Penumbra Doctrine fame, we've discussed a few times in the early episodes, was the longest serving justice on the Supreme Court. Here's the question. Which Alfred Hitchcock film ends with a scene in which a character pretends to read a book by William O. Douglas? That's from Mick and Rajay stealing from Paige. Hmm. Uh, at this point, I, I must say I have never watched a film by Alfred Hitchcock. I only know some titles. I'm making my horrified uh, face. Well, it is a horror. Uh, he was a horror director, so. Um, <laughs> um, I know titles. But. Yeah, I've seen Family Plot. Maybe it's Family Plot. <laughs> That's all I, I got. There's a of. bunch of other options out there. <laughs> uh, Vertigo, uh, North by Northwest, Rear Window. Strangers on a Train got mentioned already, so did The Birds. Rope. Uh, lots of, lots of, on a Train seems like one where someone would need to pretend to read a book, you know? Pretends? Like, it must be one of the ones with spies, maybe? A lot of ones with yeah. spies. Doesn't North by Northwest involve spies? It does, doesn't it? Um, Want to do that? You'd seem to like that one. I got no better option. All right, we're going to go with North by Northwest. All right, yeah. No, I, I like how family plot at all the Hitchcock movies is the one you've seen. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if I remember correctly, the last scene of North by Northwest is very phallic and involves a train going into a tunnel while the two leads share a compartment on the train and it's nighttime. Um. That's a good time for Tim to read. <laughs> is that your move? <laughs> Um, so this is a very specific question. I'm trying, I've seen pretty much all of Hitchcock's filmography and I'm going back to my, actually my favorite Hitchcock film and the first one I ever saw because the last scene involves somebody sitting on a park bench watching the main villain figure out whether a key is in his pocket or somewhere else and i almost it almost i, I kind of want to go through all the hitchcock movies i can think of and like the man who knew too much is the end of that movie so calm it's not really like i don't know i'm, I'm just gonna go with my instinct here i'm gonna say dial m for murder all right, yeah, good guess. It's interesting you called him a, a horror director, Mick, because a lot of people say that, but out of, like, the 60 feature films he directed, I think only two of them could really be called horror. Psycho. Well, I think three. Psycho, The Birds, and Frenzy. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, Frenzy certainly has some horrific scenes in it, but it's kind of structured more like a mystery thriller. Fair, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's a Fence, open director, something like that. But yeah, I mean, the, the correct answer, one of the films that Paige mentioned, and I think maybe his most accessible one to modern day audiences, because it's just very entertaining throughout. But the twist here was that although William O. Douglas was known as a Supreme Court justice, he was also a great traveler and actually wrote several books about his exotic travels. Uh, in this case, a book uh, called High in the Himalayas. Do you remember it now, Paige? I just say it because I'm going to embarrass myself if I try again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
So this film, of course, throughout it, one character is a fan of traveling exotic places. The other one prefers things like fashion and doesn't really want to. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Rear window. <laughs> Right. And in the final scene, she's pretending to read about exotic travels, but actually reading a fashion magazine. And it's Grace Kelly in Rear Window. Mm-hmm. All right. Next question. Paige and Rajay to steal from Mick. A house within the Fort Vancouver National Historic Site, about a 10 to 15 minute drive from where I currently am, has been preserved as the historic home of what general? to whom Chief Joseph's I will fight no more forever speech was addressed. His historical legacy is complicated by the need to weigh his role in the forced removal of Native Americans against his positive efforts on behalf of ex-slaves following the Civil War. Indeed, to this day, his name has strongly positive connotations within the Black American community. Hmm. Hmm. Glad to read this. Yeah, me too. Hmm. What general? Hmm. Fort Vancouver National Historic Site. Mm-hmm. That is, I'm assuming, Washington or Oregon? Yeah, it's on the border between them. Yeah, okay. I'm just guessing if he has strongly positive connotations, that maybe someone named themselves after him? Maybe. A musician, perhaps? So, Chief Joseph, the first thought I had was General Custer, because hmm. um, he definitely fought against Native Americans. I don't know if there's a strong positive connotation within the Black American community for him. And I don't know if Chief Joseph was contemporary with him or not, but that's the that's the general that came to mind first. I see. This is interesting. It says his historical legacy is complicated by the need to weigh his role in the forced removal of Native Americans <laughs> against his positive efforts on behalf of ex-slaves following the Civil War. I see. Um, so, Trail general. of Tears. Who led the Trail of Tears? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, William Tecumseh Sherman. I don't know. I'm just throwing names out there. That could be Sherman's very not a bad. Sherman's not a bad at all. Oh, <laughs> his memoirs that I'm currently reading. It is not a clue one way or another. That's true. <laughs> um. That's not bad because Sherman Atlanta, I know that there's a lot of Sherman and Atlanta mentions in a lot of rap and hip hop. Okay, let's go with that then. Okay, go with Sherman. We're going to go with Sherman. All right, Nick? I've read about the Chief Joseph thing, and there's about three generals that I can think of who were involved in the Pacific Northwest sort of deportation of Native Americans during that time. One is Terry, the other is Canby. And the third is this guy, which I'm going to go with because I believe he was the head of the Freedmen's Bureau after the Civil War. And he is the namesake of a university, an HBCU in the South. And I believe it's General Oliver Otis Howard. Hmm. Yeah, I think the general who actually tracked down Chief Joseph was Marcus Reno, who was also president at Little Bighorn when Custer was killed. But as far as I know, Reno doesn't have super, it doesn't really have any connotations to black Americans beyond what it has to, you know, everyone. Um, but yeah, as you said, Oliver O. Howard was the head of the Freedmen's Bureau, did a lot on behalf of ex-slaves, and is the namesake of Howard University, and he is the correct answer to this question. Yeah, he did not have a great reputation as a general during the Civil War, but afterwards, all these things happened. <laughs> nice. Yeah. All right, and now the last question of the round to Mick and Paige to steal from Rajay. Mary Somerville, namesake of Oxford Somerville College, made her reputation as a science writer with an 1831 translation of Mécanique Céleste, the five-volume magnum opus of what French polymath 
who laid the foundation for calculus-based physics. He also developed the dynamic theory of tides and made huge contributions to the field of probability. Debates about scientific determinism often cite his namesake Demon, a hypothetical being who has perfect knowledge of the present state of the universe and therefore should be able to know the past and future with complete certainty. Hmm. Okay. Let's see. So, French polymath. Okay. Yeah. Right. Mechanics Celeste, I believe, is like the workings of the stars or the uh, bodies in the sky. Yeah. Um, uh, foundation for calculus-based physics. Yeah. So, like, what is it? Newton and who is the, the French guy who was also credited with developing calculus. Although that's not necessarily what this is saying he did. Yeah. Calculus-based physics. Yeah. Um, Could be someone like Pascal. Okay. Uh, like, really, besides, like, Pythagoras and newton the only name like euler is really <laughs> like one math name <laughs> that i have <laughs> i know <laughs> neither is pythagoras yeah uh, uh, her reputation as a science writer no, oh, oh this is this is somebody else never mind yeah yeah she's the translator yeah. very smart. right right okay uh-huh. so there's the demon which is not schrodinger no descartes um, might have a demon descartes another descartes, polymath that is true um, the dynamic theory of tides. Contributions to the field of probability. Mm. Um, hmm. Maxwell's demon is not this demon. Maxwell's was British and has to do with thermodynamics. And I think I think Descartes might be associated with a demon, but it's a different kind of demon. Um, yeah. About sensory perception and like, what mm-hmm. if what if the entire universe is being fed to right. you falsely by a demon? That's not the same thing as this. No. <laughs> Although, but if it was, that demon would probably have perfect knowledge of the past, present, and future because it was creating it. Yes, and probably would be able to answer this question. Yes, that's true. <laughs> Can we summon a demon? Can we phone a friend who is also a demon? Um, so I, I mean, my first guess was Pascal. I don't really Let's, know anything about Pascal other than uh, he was a French mathematician who did a bunch of stuff. That sounds great. Let's go with Pascal. All right, locking in Pascal. Yep. Yes. All right, Roger. Yeah, uh, Pascal's an interesting answer. When it comes to the probability part, I'm thinking of Poisson, as in the Poisson distribution. Though I don't know of a Poisson demon, and I can't think of any other demons, honestly, except for Maxwell's demon, which is not the right one in this case. I believe Poisson was a polymath, um, but the calculus-based physics is throwing me off a little bit, because looking into that, you got like Leibniz and Newton that are just calculus folks. But when it comes to the physics side of it, geez, you got like the... So you got the Jacobian, you got um, the different fields and stuff, you have the Hamiltonian equation, but some of those are more on the quantum side. But I can't think of anyone French, except maybe Jacobian, which would be, I don't know who the namesake for the Jacobian is, but that is more generalized beyond physics. You know what, I'm going to say Poisson. Good guess, but yeah, this is someone who basically developed what's now called the Bayesian interpretation in probability. It did a bunch of other stuff. His name was Pierre-Simon Laplace. Ah, Laplace's demon. I've heard of that. All right. And so we end this round with Paige at 10.1, Mick at 13.5, and Rajay 4.0. But the point mm-hmm. values now go up to six points for a steal and five for a regular getting it as a specialist and three for a bonus. And so we'll go into the final round, the super hard round. The questions are even harder now. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> start with Mick and Rajay now to steal from Paige. All right. Did you think you could get away with just one question about a Gene Tierney movie? Nope. Here's another one. <laughs> Ernst Lubitsch's Heaven Can Wait and Hitchcock's Shadow of a Doubt are both classic movies released in 1943. They're also linked... (laughs) 
<laughs> Sadly, this is not a true-false question. <laughs> they are also linked because their musical scores heavily interpolate a waltz originally written by Franz Lehár for what operetta? The title of this operetta also appears several times in the dialogue of Shadow of a Doubt as part of the nickname of a serial killer. Oh, operetta. Yeah, but- read it here. Operettas give us a lot of room to work with, which is not what we want. <laughs> I, I don't know. None of this stuff. I thought Gene Turney was an actor in Reservoir Dogs, but I think I'm wrong on that. Uh, he had a lot of range. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm useless on this one, man. I'm sorry. I don't know any of this stuff. Yeah. I mean, I guess we just got to guess a, an opera piece and, and hope for the best. I was hoping, like, it had to be something that has to deal with the serial murderer, and I've not seen Shadow of a Doubt. I was thinking, like, the Flying Dutchman, maybe. Let's do it. I will say the Flying Dutchman. Decent guess, given what you know, but not correct. Paige? So, I love Shadow of a Doubt. It is one of the most underrated Hitchcock movies, and I wish I could just say it's the Uncle Charlie Waltz, because that would be easy, but it's... It's not. I don't. I remember that this was a thing. I don't quite remember what the operetta was, but I do remember the name of an operetta that I watched a film adaptation of around the same time that I believe I was taking the Hitchcock class at USC in a musicals class because being a film major is fun. And it was the um, I think the Merry Widow. And that feels like a serial killer name, so I'm going to go with The Merry Widow. Yeah, I, I agree. Shout out the doubt. One of the most underrated Hitchcocks and Joseph Cotton, well, let's just say was suspected of being a murderer who married women and then killed them. And his nickname in the film was The Merry Widow Murderer. So this is The Merry Widow Waltz. Good job. Well done. All right. Paige and Rajay now to steal from Mick. After losing his position as head of the Army of the Potomac following a humiliating defeat at Chancellorsville, General Joseph Hooker redeemed himself by shepherding some 20,000 troops over 1,200 miles in about a week in order to relieve the besieged General William Rosecrans. Hooker then led them to victory in the Battle of Lookout Mountain, a part of what larger battle, or campaign, of late 1863 that gave the Union access to the Deep South and cleared the way for Sherman's Atlanta campaign and subsequent march to the sea. Hmm. Um, I thought I remember seeing, like, somewhere in Boston that Hooker was the namesake of prostitute. Um, <laughs> maybe it's a different Hooker, or maybe that's just apocryphal. I don't know. Um, will that help with this question? I don't know. I mean, this is this has helped me in my life right now, so I think <laughs> whatever. <laughs> I enjoyed that. Um, I got. I don't know. The Battle of Lookout Mountain. That sound. That just reminds me of uh, Escape from Witch Mountain, which is not related at all to this question. <laughs> um, 1,200 miles in a week. That's a lot. Yeah. That's so, like 200 miles a day. Um, mm-hmm. So I guess they were using horses or going by sea or something. So it would, so it gave him access to the deep South, which means that this probably happened in like Maryland or Virginia, somewhere along those lines. What was the battle that um, had Bloody Lane? It happened in Maryland. It was one of the bloodiest days of the Civil War, or times of the Civil War. Um, Chickamauga? No. This is like, it's like one of those that, it's like one of the, the highlight battles of the Civil War, like Gettysburg, where right, right, right. if um, you don't know anything, you know that. Yeah, yeah, it's like the name of Angelina Jolie's daughter. Shiloh. That is one of their <laughs> That was one of them, right? No, it's something else then. Um, 
There was a battle of Shiloh, right? I'm not crazy. No, there was another. <laughs> yeah, involved battle. a lost dog that got orphaned and. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> For people who aren't exactly our age, that's going to be way too deep a reference. We've already started with Benicula Yogesh. We're just going to <laughs> we can just keep doing the middle grade novels of the '90s. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> um. Um. Andersonville was the prison. There's a battle of... There's, there's a Nora Roberts book I read that references this battle. This is where all of my knowledge comes from. It's just romance novels now. Okay, um, well, even if we know the battle, will that help you? Um, it's what We're looking for a larger battle or campaign. Right, right. Shenandoah. Shenandoah. It's well, started with a T, right? That was also pretty bloody. I don't know. Um, God. <sighs> the... Larger battle, um, or campaign. Would we still like a port city, perhaps near um, like Georgia? An- no. Annapolis, Baltimore, Richmond. Can we can we name uh, the like right now? The only Gettysburg and Bull Run are the only things that are coming to mind. Like, <laughs> not either of those. Uh, anything? Um, well, let's just say Gettysburg. Let's just say Gettysburg. Yeah. All right. Yeah, I think you you know that's kind of a long shot, and that yeah. was a bit, bit up in Pennsylvania. But all right, yeah. Mick. Uh, this this took place in Tennessee, right on the Tennessee Alabama border. And in fact, after his role in the battle, Joe Hooker thought he didn't get enough of the credit, which was a frequent feature during his career, and wound up getting reassigned to the West, maybe even Minnesota, which was the West in the 1860s. So this is part of the Battle of Chattanooga. Mm. Yeah, it came after. Chickamauga was where Rosecrans was defeated and, and retreated back to Chattanooga and was replaced by George Thomas, but Hooker came in to relieve him and really turned the tide of the war at that point. Um, but yes, it was Chattanooga. And I've definitely heard before the etymology that Hooker was the namesake of the slang term for prostitutes. I don't think there's any confirmation on that, but it's a fun story. <laughs> Keep telling it. All right. <laughs> yeah. All right. Mick and Paige now to steal from Rajay. Here's a short question. The world of Subcon, ruled by a figure called Wart, is the setting for what classic video game? Uh, I, I know this. Okay. Well, then you say it because I don't know half of these words. <laughs> uh, this is the... But well, it's not even posted yet. Go, you can go chat. ahead and answer. Don't, don't, don't have to wait for it to post. Okay, I mean, if yeah, you know it's it. the U.S. version of Super Mario Brothers 2. Yeah. The original game developed as the sequel to Mario Brothers was considered too weird or difficult for American audiences. So a game called Doki Doki Panic was reskinned and turned into the U.S. version of Super Mario Brothers 2. So that's correct. And I'll give a bonus to Rajay. In the original Japanese game, Doki Doki Panic... The world is not known as subcon, but by what Japanese syllable that can be translated as not or nothing or nullity? In a famous koan, it is the response given by a Zen master to the question, does a dog have Buddha nature? I believe in Japanese, the syllable for nothing is mu. Does a dog have Buddha nature? Interesting. I'll go with that, mu. Yeah, it's it's, it's a difficult to translate one, but it off, it is sometimes just translated as no or not or nothing, but it kind of, in Zen Buddhism, is sometimes considered sort of a response that doesn't mean either yes or no and is intended to kind of break the mind of the sort of uh, analytical all-or-nothing logic. But yes, it is mu or mu. Good job. Also, with regard to one of Paige's categories, this is almost certainly what Joey Tribbiani meant when he said that a moo point is like a cow's opinion because it doesn't matter. And now a question with a USC connection, although I won't reveal up front what that is, but for Mick and Rajay to steal from Paige, fill in the two missing words in this quote from a fourth season episode of Friends that sees Monica address each of the five fellow friends individually by turn. 
fine, judge all you want to, but married a lesbian, left a man at the altar, fell in love with a gay ice dancer, threw a girl's wooden leg in the fire, blank in a blank. Oh, uh, starred in a porno. Wait. I I have nothing. I I know very little about Friends other than Paige really likes it. (laughs) The starter in a porno thing actually was said by Chandler at one point, but maybe it was brought up again. It could have been brought up in the fourth season, but let's see. Married a lesbian would be Ross. Left the man at the altar would be Rachel. Fell in love with a gay ice dancer would probably Phoebe. Threw a girl's leg in the fire. Might have been Chandler, so then... Yeah, it's definitely, that's more Chandler than Joey. And then so Joey was the last one, so probably he starred in the porno. So let's say starred in a porno. All right, Paige, is that correct? That is not correct. Damn it. So this is a Thanksgiving episode, which is fantastic. And the context for all of this is that Monica is dating a Dr. Burke, played by Michael Vartan, who is supposed to be Tom Selleck's son. And Monica dated Tom Selleck, Dr. Richard Burke, in a previous season. And she invites him to Thanksgiving. And all of them are giving her shit. And she says... Fine, judge all you want to, but married a lesbian, left a man at the altar, fell in love with a gay ice dancer, threw a girl's wooden leg in the fire, living in a box. (laughs) Because Joey is currently in a box to show, or Chandler's currently in a box to show that he's sorry for cheating on, uh, for making out with Joey's girlfriend, Kathy, played by Paget Brewster. And so he is sitting in a box in the middle of the room. (laughs) Yeah, Paget Brewster having a very unflattering 90s haircut in that episode. Mm. (laughs) But um, yeah, you actually were slightly off. She actually says live in a box, but I think that's close enough to give you credit. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. And that, that episode was directed by Pete Bonners, who had played Jerry Robinson on the Bob Newhart show in the 70s. But when I was at USC, he actually was an instructor there. And because I was a fan of the Bob Newhart show, I sought him out and we had many discussions, mostly of his role in the film Medium Cool. But yeah, he taught a multi-camera sitcom class that my girlfriend took. And yeah, so nice. that's the USC connection there. All right. Paige and Rajay now to steal from Mick. Known as the ukulele lady, May Singy Breen devoted her entire life to legitimizing and popularizing that instrument, in part through the long-running radio show she hosted with her husband, Peter DeRose. That's just information for color. The rest of the question has nothing to do with it. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But speaking of Peter DeRose, her husband, he was a Tin Pan Alley songwriter whose best-known composition has been recorded over the years by Duke Ellington, Glenn Miller, Sarah Vaughan, and many others. Since the introduction of the standardized Billboard charts, that song has been a number 18 hit for Billy Ward and his Dominoes in 1957, a number one hit for Nino Tempo and April Stevens in 1963, and a number 14 hit for Donnie and Marie Osmond in 1975. Yet in spite of all that, it is probably most familiar to pop music fans, pop music defined broadly, for giving its name to a band formed in 1960 that was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2016. What name is shared by the band and the song? I just, I don't know what the answer is, but this is a, I'm very excited to learn because this is fascinating. Yeah. Okay, so it is, it's a pretty old song. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it went from that. jazz, old standard, I mean, to super poppy, Donnie and Marie. What band was inducted in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2016? That was formed in 1968. If they're formed in 68, it means they were probably active more in the 70s. Sure, yeah. Depend, yeah, just, you know, you need a few years to really get your groove on. Right. Um, so bands, The Who, Rolling Stones, Stones. is Aerosmith 2. No, they yeah. came later. Yeah. Um, um, what if it is Rolling Stones? Damn, well, I, wait, did they get their name from the Bob Dylan song? Papa was a Rolling Stone. 
I don't know. Okay. Papa was a Rolling Stone was not a Bob Dylan song. Oh, okay. I didn't... <laughs> Close. <laughs> I apologize to everybody listening who's yelling at their whatever devices. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And it's been around for 48 years. Yeah. Um, back then. And maybe they're still around. I don't know. So we got The Who. We got Rolling Stones. We got um, Grateful Dead. Uh, no, that, they would have come earlier. Yeah. There's the Jimi Hendrix experience. <laughs> All right. There is... And it's most fam- like these are these are huge hits, but it's most familiar to fans for giving its name to a band. Yeah, and like the Osmonds sang it, which is weird to think. Um, yeah. So it's kind of like family friendly what, name. Probably what not, if it's like what if it's like Casey and the Sunshine Band or something like that, where it's a, just weird no, like a Commodores. Uh, Commodores. Oh, that's interesting. Going down the Motown side. Yeah. I don't know what the song would be, but. Apparently, the song's not necessarily as famous as the band, so... Right, and the band and the song have the exact same name. Okay. Okay. Oh, that's good to know. Cool in the gang. <laughs> no, they're a little <laughs> bit too late. <laughs> yeah. So, it's, it's, I would, it wouldn't be The Who, then, because right. I don't know if a song would be called The Who. Right. Um, uh, Velvet Underground. Oh. Because that was... That was sort of informed. It was formed contemporarily with Andy Warhol, maybe. Am I making that up? I don't know how that would be the name of a song, but you never know what song. But like, I mean, with jazz, Velvet Under, like. Sure. Or, well, yeah. Right, Duke Ellington. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's go with that. All right, Velvet Underground. Velvet Underground. All right, good guess, Mick. Well, I don't know for sure. In fact, this is this is quite a guess. Um, and I do not recognize any of these songs. Nor, nor really should I, because they were well before my time. And I had a couple ideas that might be appropriate. One thought was the New York Dolls, because it had to be a band which, if it was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2016, it had to be more or less on the fringe. Because obviously, like, otherwise they would have got in the instant they were eligible, like really famous bands do. But I'm going to go with a guess, which sounds like it might be a song title, which is the Moody Blues. Oh, oh. very good guess. I think I think they were also British, so, you know, in the right country. And you were right to think about colors. I was really fascinated to see what kind of things people would think up. And those were both really good guesses. But yeah, this band did a, or their style of music was very different from the song. But apparently the song was a favorite of the grandmother of Richie Blackmore. Um, oh. So, yeah, he picked it. And Mick, do you know it now? Is it Deep Purple? Deep Purple. I, I thought about Deep Purple. I just like, that doesn't sound like a song title. <laughs> the more All you right. know. Yeah. Right. Not a song title that Donnie and Marie would sing anyway. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Fun uh, trivia fact. So the Nino Tembo and April Stevens number one hit U.S. hit version was back with a song called, I, uh, <laughs> um, holding a book called okay. Deep Purple in Rock. Yeah. It's a vinyl album by them. I, I own and have in the room. <laughs> yeah for, for future reference he was holding up a book about william tecumseh sherman during that question but yeah oh yeah so the number one hit three was back with a song called i've been carrying a torch for you so long that i burned a great big hole in my heart which was for a long time the record of the longest title of a b-side to a number one u.s hit until huh. prince in 1984 released when doves cry back with the song 17 days, parentheses, the rain will come down, then you will have to choose if you believe, look to the dawn, and you shall never lose. Close parentheses. <laughs> <Gotcha>. <laughs> yes. On brand. Uh, 
Yeah, so the, the U and two are spelled there as a capital U and the number two, which you may recall from the song Nothing Compares to You, which was written by Prince. Huh. So yes, it is on brand. All right, so now I have to apologize to Raja. His last two specialist questions aren't really in his specialist categories at all. I just like them so much that I kind of shoehorned them in. Uh, <laughs> Fair. All right. But we'll see how they play. Mick and Paige now to steal from Rajay. Sometimes studio heads are so convinced they know what the public wants to see that they pour money into a production that in retrospect seems spectacularly wrongheaded. Such was the case with Daryl F. Zanuck, who put millions of 20th Century Fox's money into a technicolor biographical epic about the life of a certain U.S. president that he was convinced spelled box office gold. Indeed, the finished film won five Academy Awards and was nominated for several more, including Best Picture, Best Actor, and Best Director. But it died at the box office and is all but forgotten today. Which president was it about? Hmm. So this has got to be, what, 50s or 60s? Zanuck, yeah, or late 30s, early 40s, um, was nominated for several. Hmm. So we have a finite number of presidents. Yes, this is true. Um, So it's. A certain U.S. president, but it's all forgotten, but forgotten. So my thought is that this isn't like Washington or Lincoln necessarily. Mm-hmm. You know, it might be Adams. Like Teddy, Teddy Roosevelt. Or... Yeah. Oh, Teddy Roosevelt would be interesting because he was like a yeah, frontiersman. Yeah. Was that? Yeah. An interesting life. Yeah. Andrew and, Jackson also potentially fought Indians. and. Yeah. And I... Let's see, it won five Academy Awards and was nominated for several more. So the person who played the president was, Yogesh, is that, is that correct in terms of the wording? The things after nominated are the ones that it was nominated for and didn't win. Right, yes. Okay, so that means that it could have been screenplay that it won, It could, but it could also have been like art direction yeah, or costume. costume. Yeah. yeah, makeup. So let's see, so... I know, well, Grant would probably sell poorly because, like, you have to sell to the American South and they're not going to Right. And, like, Zanuck was involved with Gone with the Wind. So Andrew Jackson, I think, is a good guess because of the association with the South and just kind of the uh, rip-roaring thing. But also, Teddy Roosevelt feels like a more linear narrative, especially because he was warning around, like, shooting bears and stuff and mm-hmm. the Rough Riders. I, I like your idea of Teddy Roosevelt. I, I really have it's just a guess. Yeah. I got nothing. All right. Let's. Do you want? Are you go good to go with it, or you want to talk more? I mean, I'm I'm more inclined towards Jackson just because okay. of those sort of associations. Like also with Roosevelt, we just had a Roosevelt, mm. and we still have Eleanor Roosevelt around. But I don't know. It could be it could be him. But I, I I feel like epic means like not this guy who died 40 years ago, but this guy who died 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the epic thing. Epic to me means just lots of different places, lots of different scenes, lots of battles, I guess. So maybe that is, is that more Jackson? I mean, it applies to yeah. most of them. Yeah. I, I mean, it says it's all but forgotten, so it doesn't help that I don't know of a movie that's made about either of them. <laughs> yeah, it only reinforces the clue, in fact. Right. <laughs> Let's go with Andrew Jackson. Okay. Let's go with Andrew Jackson. All right. Very good guess. Roger. Well, I am about as stumped as you are, and Teddy Roosevelt was my guess, so I'll go with Teddy Roosevelt. All right, yeah, good guesses, but yeah, there was, at least in those days, sort of, uh, I guess, yeah, figures from the South were maybe more popular. There was, I think in the 40s, a biopic called Tennessee Johnson about Andrew Johnson, which uh, (laughs) presented Tavia Stevens as a villain for his desire to, you know, 
help ex-slaves following the Civil War. But this movie came out in 1944. The not-all-that-well-remembered character actor Alexander Knox got a rare lead role in a Best Actor Oscar nomination, and he portrayed Woodrow Wilson. Oh, wow. Oh, okay. Uh, uh, okay. <laughs> the guy who went into a coma and his wife actually ran the country for a few weeks there. <laughs> for, for, for a second there, I thought you were going to do something really devious and make it say that the movie's about Jefferson Davis. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That might have but, sold in the 40s. You never know. But he wasn't right, a U.S. president. Yeah. Right, that was an interesting way to, yeah, but yeah, Wilson did consider himself a Southern, at least. He was from Virginia, although he spent a lot of his life in the North. All right, now, one final cycle, so each of you will get one remaining specialist question and two chances to steal, and basically, this lead's been seesawing back and forth between Paige and Mick, so it'll be decided now. In these last three questions, we'll start with Mick and Rajay to steal from Paige. Here's a quote. It was as if I suddenly went to a foreign country but didn't know the language, but had read enough and had a passionate interest and was eager to live there. I wanted to live in this land. I had to live there and master the language. End quote. Such was what artist's recollection of her reaction to seeing a 1951 exhibition of Jackson Pollock's paintings. Her early trademark technique of painting onto unprimed canvas with oil heavily diluted with turpentine, which she dubbed soak stain, can be seen in her most famous work, Mountains and Sea. Mm. Wow, never heard of Mountains and Sea, but which female artist would it be? Oof. Mountains and Sea. So it can't be something like Georgia O'Keeffe, and this is a little late for her anyway. Yeah, I, I, I don't have a, a big frame of reference for this. Do you have any ideas? Uh, no, I mean, it might be one of those artists that's famous for something else, but had like a rich, you know, youth where they kind of did something a little different. I don't know. I'm just... Yeah, it says the most famous work, Mountains and Sea. So right. like, if she has Good other point. things, she's less well known for them. And, like, the female artists that I know from the late 20th century are all sort of performance artists or video artists or things like that. Yeah. I see. Like, Live there, master the language. Soak stain. Yeah, I don't know. We might have to pass here. I don't have anything. Well, well, we let's just say Georgia O'Keeffe because it's better than nothing. Yeah. All right. We'll say Georgia O'Keeffe. All right. Yeah. And as you know, that's kind of a long shot page. Yeah, this is this one's tough for me, too. The educational system really doesn't include a lot of women artists who aren't Frida Kahlo or Georgia O'Keeffe, or like Mary Cassatt, who predates this, or Artemisia Genelescu, who was decayed by the time that this happened. And then like Marina Abramovich is performance artist. And Yayoi Kasama does installation. So I, I'm, I'm pretty stumped here. And my guess would have been Georgia O'Keeffe just because Mountains and Seas is about nature and she does a lot of nature-based things. And I think Frida Kahlo is, Frida Kahlo is too old for this Unless she went there, she went and saw this towards the end of her life. Because like Diego Rivera had a discussion, had had her husband was like, had conversations with Picasso, I think. But Picasso was old. You know, what? I'm just going to go with Frida Kahlo because I got nothing else. Yeah. So I think the quote kind of demonstrates it was someone at the beginning of their career. Right. right. Talking about being inspired. But yeah, it's it's true. There aren't, you know, the educational system doesn't really focus on female artists, even important ones. And this probably the most famous woman grouped under the umbrella of abstract expressionism, although she's more identified with color field painting which is kind of linked to abstract expressionism, but arguably not quite the same thing. Her name, Helen Frankenthaler. Okay. Mm, Now, the penultimate question of the game will be back to the Civil War. So, Paige and Roger to steal from (laughs) our resident Civil War expert, Mick. 
It would kill me if you couldn't name what South Carolina slave who heroically escaped to freedom in May 1862 by commandeering the CSS planter and sailing it into Union-controlled waters. Despite never receiving a full share of the prize money he was due, he continued to pilot the planter as a Union vessel. Among other operations, he provided naval support for the approach on Savannah at the finale of Sherman's March to the Sea. After the war, he returned to South Carolina and served as a Republican congressman until the end of Reconstruction. I mean... Black congressman. That is my biggest clue here. Was Frederick Douglass an escaped slave? Yeah, I don't know if he was. The only other slave I can think of. We get to know each other over time. What was that? Google assistant just turns on from time to time. Oh, um, the other slave I can think of was Bezzy, maybe? But I don't think he was involved in the war like that. But um, mm-hmm. let's see. It would kill me if you could name what South Carolina slave... That's, I mean, that's obviously a uh, an intentional little hint. Right. Maybe in the name has something to do with death or dying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, let me kill Mister has kill in the name. Killmonger. <laughs> it's the namesake of the Black Panther villain. Um, hey. Rajay, what was the name of the person who you were who you thought oh, of? Vesey, V-E-S-E-Y. Vesey. I am not familiar with with him, but that doesn't mean. Anything? He led a slave uprising at some point in history. Ah. Hmm. Oh, maybe it's one of the characters in Glory? I don't know. I haven't seen I haven't seen Glory in a very long time, but it could be. I... Hmm. And the, the congressman thing, is there... Yeah. I feel I feel embarrassed I don't know any other black congressman. Mm-hmm. And he was from... He lived in South Carolina, so right. that means it's probably not Frederick Douglass who has... I think he was in New York? Maybe not. I don't know. Do, do we can we could just create we could figure out a last name to guess like a generic <laughs> like Brown or Washington or <laughs> hmm. Howard again. <laughs> <laughs> um, kill me. Um, is that something to do with where like Yogesh is from? Like name of the city? <laughs> I, I would I would be good going with like Brown or with or some other random generic thing or Frederick Douglass. Or just, you know, just Douglas. All right, yeah, let's go with Frederick Douglas. All right. We'll go with let's Douglas. do that. Yeah. All right, Lucky Douglas, all right. Uh, Excuse me, there's there's a cat on. Yeah, we see it. <laughs> all right, Mick? I could tell you this guy's entire life story, but I cannot remember his name. Uh-huh. And he's actually popped up in sort of recent media about civil rights and remembering Reconstruction, but I can't remember a specific name. So I'm going to go with the pun or the, the clue at the beginning and just say murder. <laughs> Yeah, so when I say you're killing me, I'm trying to trigger a memory of a certain early 90s film oh, called The Smalls. His name was Robert Smalls. Robert Smalls. Oh. Little hidden reference to the Sandlot there in the question. <laughs> uh, yeah, he, he, was the, he was the last Republican to represent South Carolina's 5th District until 2010, which saw the election of future Trump lackey Mick Mulvaney, possibly the most famous person who is openly a member of Learned League. Mm-hmm. All right. Now, and really, really fin- low on the list of all-time mix. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. One of the two most famous mix in Learned League, maybe. Um, all right. And now the final question of the game. Again, yeah. So I'll just reveal it. Rajay basically just supplied movies and TV as a category, which gave me quite a lot to work with. But unfortunately, some of it won't be within the specific movies and TV he's familiar with. So that's the dangers of not supplying a sufficiently specific category. All right. But we'll see what happens now. Mick and Paige. Actually, I guess... 
I guess that means the lead is decided because those are the two threatening for the lead. But this is really more about pride and intellectual achievement than scores. So uh, we'll all try hard, I hope, on the last question. <laughs> and Paige to steal from Rajay. What actor made headlines in 2013 when a study by MIT Media Lab revealed that he was the subject of Wikipedia articles in more languages than any individual in history except for Jesus and Barack Obama? A thread on Reddit concluded that this was likely due to a polyglot superfan, or maybe group of fans, based in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. That's not really relevant to the question. Uh, <laughs> this man has worked steadily over the past decade, including taking over the lead roles in Broadway productions of In the Heights and Godspell, and doing a stint on the daytime soap One Life to Live, but he remains best known for performances he gave on the Disney Channel when he was a teenager. You might also remember him as a child actor with small parts in the cult classics Galaxy Quest and Mystery Men. Those were very small parts, but those are kind of cult movies that people watch over and over. So I guess it's possible someone might remember him. Anyway, that's the question. <laughs> anyway, that's the question. <laughs> this, this is all you, Paige. This is all right. So my first thought when I hear about Disney Channel is Zac Efron. But that doesn't jive with In the Heights, which is about, which is Lin-Manuel Miranda's, one of his musicals before Hamilton. Another one is Bring It On the Musical, if you didn't know that, which never really made it to Broadway, but had a good run over down in downtown Los Angeles. And you can find a, uh, a performance of it bootlegged on YouTube, if you want to know what I've done sometimes. Um... <laughs> so I'm assuming this person is Latinx or brown in some way. Yeah. And I don't know anything about One Life to Live. The Disney Channel when he was a teenager, and it is a child actor in cult classics like Galaxy Quest and Mystery Men. I haven't seen either of those recently enough to be able to say that. But also he can sing. So I'm assuming it's like Disney. he was on the Disney Channel in like a high school musical type thing. Yeah. And Corbin Blue was the best friend in High School Musical. He was, I believe he's black, um, or at least partially black. Uh, I don't know if he's Latinx or not. That's the real uh, That's the real question for In the Heights. But he can sing, he can dance. And because of a say yes to the dress that I saw a few years ago, I know that he lives in New York, which means Broadway is potentially um, a thing. Um It'd be real I mean, weird. I mean, just, if, just for that story alone, that means we should probably pick him as our answer. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I don't understand why he would have more Wikipedia articles than anybody else, but that's the only person that's come to mind. Yeah, so I'm gonna, I, that's my thought is Corbin Blue. All right, let's go with it. All right. <laughs> Yeah, so that is, yeah, basically, you know, I, I thought this was an obscure question, but I hoped I'd put in enough kind of breadcrumbs there for you to follow, and it looks like I did, because it was... <laughs> it is, wow. I'll give Rajay a, a bonus to end the game with. Speaking of Corbin Blue, in 2016, Corbin Blue co-starred in the original Broadway production of a musical based on what 1942 Fred Astaire Bing Crosby film featuring songs by Irving Berlin. Okay. Well, my other guess for the previous one was Justin Long, and I wish it was that one, because I know very little about Corbin Blue. Um, <laughs> do you mind pasting it in anyway? <laughs> oh, sorry. Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> getting a little sloppy toward the end of the game. Uh, okay. Oh, Fred Astaire, Bing Crosby. Um, what did they do? Uh, Fred Astaire did that vacuum commercial after he was dead. Uh, <laughs> 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 well, I know what you're looking for. Uh, <laughs> 
Ben Crosby did uh, those Christmas songs, and then together they did, shoot, uh, Irving Berlin. What did he do? I need to watch more movies. Well, better movies. I watch a lot of crap. <laughs> so what is a famous musical? Uh, 1942. Jeez, I should know this. Let's go with uh, The Odd Couple. <laughs> Yeah, I think you know that's not likely to be correct, but oh yeah, a few a few others based on what Paige was saying earlier. I meant to mention so Bring It On the musical did did have a run on Broadway, not a, a long or impressive run, but it did make it there. And I think Linwell Man Miranda had because I think when my parents went to visit, I just did a scan through all of the shows that were playing on Broadway just to kind of see what I, I ended up taking them to Mamma Mia because you know playing it safe, but. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I think Lin-Manuel Miranda had fairly small amount. He's like credited with like additional lyrics or something, but fairly small amount. And it was also not particularly based on the plot of the film, if I recall. It just takes the notion of cheerleading and yeah, so that's uh, not relevant to this. But yeah, so Irving <laughs> Berlin, most famous, well, it's definitely the best-selling song of all time. And so one of his most famous was called White Christmas. And a lot of people think that that came from the movie White Christmas, nope. but it didn't. Paige, you remember what movie? Holiday Inn. It's my favorite Christmas movie that's not Die Hard. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you know, maybe on your next YouTube binge, you can see if you can find Corbin Blue in Holiday Inn, the musical. (laughs) All right. And so we end the game. So basically the leads he saw back and forth. Paige took the lead on the friends question. Mick could have taken it back if he had remembered Robert Smalls. But we end up with Paige 32.1, Mick 30.5, 30.5, and Rajay, uh, it was not really his set of questions, but he ended up... <laughs> I kept, I ended I kept up. for science questions, and I got one. I didn't know the answer, but yes, congrats, yeah. Paige. Good job, everybody. Good game. I can't believe that I actually won. <laughs> I've so, made uh, ma- yeah. many incorrect statements. <laughs> Thank you all for staying over time as well. It's very gracious of you. And so before we go, you each get a chance to make a final statement. It can be about anything that you want. It can be about the game, about the world at large, any combination of those things or neither of those things. It's up to you. As long as it's not too long or offensive, it'll be kept in and we'll go in descending order of score. So the third place contestant will have the last word. So we'll start with Paige. I apologize for everything incorrect I said that has you all screaming at your various devices. I also apologize to the estate of Bob Dylan. And also Bob Dylan himself, because I think he's alive still. (laughs) Um, And uh, Black Lives Matter and Stop Voter Suppression. Cool. All right. Mick? I'd also like to apologize for never watching the films of Alfred Hitchcock, but I have seen Mel Brooks's High Anxiety multiple times. Fair enough. All right. Roger? I accept the apology of the other two contestants here. (laughs) (laughs) But I guess I have to apologize, too, because then I'm the jerk. But if you would like to know Japanese like I did when I got that moot question, I think one of the only ones I got right without guessing, you can try my app. Kanji drop, K-A-N-J-I-D-R-O-P.com. I'm making one for Chinese and maybe one for Korean. So give it a give it a try. It's free for iOS and Android. So just go to kanjidrop.com and you might learn something. It's like brain training, but you learn a language when you're doing it. And it's pretty fun. So thank you. And thank you, Yogesh. Yeah. All right. Thank you. That was episode 20, the season one finale of Recreational Thinking with Yogesh Rout. Thanks for listening.